Greetings and welcome back to another exciting installment of the Fifth Column Podcast. This is your weekly rhetorical an- uh, assault, not analysis, but it's an assault on the new cycle. <laughs> we make it and occasionally ourselves. <laughs> and uh, I just pulled a Joe Biden. Um, Camille Foster, I do various things at, at, at Freethink. And I'm, I'm, come on, you know the thing. You know the thing. Uh, I'm also joined by, uh, by Matt Welch, editor-at-large for Reason Magazine, for now. Michael Moynihan, he does things what, what nice for news now? for now. Because, you know what? Matt Taibbi is our, our guest today, and I usually don't include the guest in the whole thing, but Matt is a big deal, and he's back for his second tour on the podcast, I believe. Mm-hmm. And we are very, very excited to have him join us for many reasons. One, because it is his birthday. And two, because he is among the internet's biggest Putin apologists, and we have him here <laughs> to make one. the case for Russia. Number one. So yes. we'll have a real-time uh, Russian translation. <laughs> oh, you don't have to change anything. <laughs> That's right. Turn on the subtitles. That's right. It's just, it's just no, be and we'll tell you right now. A- Everything he says, just presume <laughs> that it is Russian propaganda. Yeah. Um, uh, See, anyway, so. look at that. Look at that. <laughs> look and at that right there. That's you know actually talks like that. Who <laughs> talks like that? <laughs> crazy ass language that he talks. Oh my gosh. Well, I'm I'm delighted to be with you guys today. Um last week when we were dropping an episode, I think we recorded did we record Wednesday night last week and then yeah, drop was, on yeah. Thursday like right as things were starting to heat up um in Ukraine. Um and now we actually have uh what is being described as the the largest and kind of as a as a legitimate invasion, I don't think anyone is yeah. not using that language except maybe Vladimir Putin. Um, he's described this as some sort of rescue operation to to get all of the Nazis out of Ukraine. Um, but it seems to perhaps be something other than that. Um, there there was, I guess the the consensus seemed to be that one amongst many people that this might not happen at all. Um, but two, to the extent it was happening, this would largely be you know confined to the south, and that they were trying to. To, to actually claim certain territory there. Now it is not at all clear what the end game is for the Russians. The conflict has been raging for about a week. Um, it has been um, anything but a, a kind of blitzkrieg situation. Um, instead, the Russians seem to be pretty stymied um, and jammed up in many respects. Um, and the Ukrainians have managed to rally pretty much everyone to their side. Um, they're even having calls with the Chinese um, well, everyone and, that we see in media, just to be, yes, yeah. yes, everyone we see in in media, but I, but I mean in terms of governments, everyone to their side. There have been well, the UN voted for sanctions. Keep in mind, Eritrea was well uh, would not condemn the invasion, well, but Serbia <laughs> did. Serbia did, which was That's pretty crazy. Right? Yeah, yeah. So this is this is an extraordinary circumstance. And Matt, I mean, having having lived in Russia and having written about a number of these things, I'm hoping you can you can add a little bit more color to our already. Um, explosive episode. Although I got this um, completely wrong, so. Well, that's that's the other thing. I mean, I think that's mm-hmm. that's actually wonderful. We should talk about that. And as someone who never gets things wrong, me, <laughs> yeah. um, it's nice to actually talk to someone like you, which reminds me of what it what life could be like. Camille, Camille, remember that you called this invasion, yes, but you called it in Kazakhstan, which I thought was a bit uh, a bit of a stretch. But you said, you know, trust me on this one. But I have, I will say that I think, um, I, I, think I actually referenced Aleppo. That, uh, yeah, just, yeah. What is uh, Aleppo? <laughs> to quote one of our favorite former guests, right? He was a guest. Mm-hmm. Um, no, to, get, to give Matt uh, some credit here um, beyond uh, copying to it and writing about it is that it is it is probably the easiest error to make 
because, um, you know, I made it, everybody made it. And it was funny because I was listening to, I think, BBC World Service today, and they were interviewing some, some you know, random person who uh, was in uh, Kiev and said, yeah, we all got this wrong. President Zelensky got this wrong. No one thought this was going to happen. So it's not one of those crazy mistakes to make. Except the CIA. They got it right. Well, or so they say. Well, that's actually really oh, okay. interesting. I mean... <laughs> It is because they, I mean I, I don't know if you you all saw there was a story uh, by the BBC correspondent Farida Rustamova. She actually wrote it on Substack, but it was um, it was all about how basically Putin's inner circle uh, they had a uh, basically security council meeting three days before the invasion, and they all looked like uh, none of them were in on it. Like they they weren't privy to what was going on. She had some sources who inside the Kremlin, who basically suggested that uh, this was not something that was known to the um, higher echelon people within the Kremlin uh, up until the last day. So if the CIA actually did have this call uh, before some of the top people in the Russian government did, that's kind of impressive. You would imagine and, there would have to be some sort of military planning that, that would go on for some well, weeks beyond just or, um, or not you know, considering how things are going. Well, that's what I was going to say is that <laughs> is that it looks like a, a rather um, ham fisted attempt at, you know, uh, a blitzkrieg. I mean, look, this is what I, I think there's I wrong about this, too. I was like, this is going to be a hot knife through butter um, just in size and material only. But good God, everyone was wrong about that, too. So a former coworker of mine, Leonid Brzezinski, we used to work together at the Moscow Times. He works for Bloomberg now. Um, he was talking about how uh, one of the reasons the military experts, a lot of the military experts thought that. They thought he would invade, but then it would be a quick and decisive victory. Um, and they thought that because they were assuming that it was a rational plan and that the, the soldiers, if they were going to invade, would have been trained. But if um, I spent a lot of today watching the videos of the captured POWs, uh, the Russians talking, and it seems like a lot of them were reservists who were called up a week before the invasion and had no clue what that this was coming. They didn't do any special training for this. So they, they may not have actually trained for this invasion, uh, which is one of the reasons why it looks so bad. Uh, just massive Matt, tactical error. Matt, you said the the media is, you know, all kind of united on this one. And I would say that I probably would be one of those people. Um, I don't think consider myself <laughs> really a part of the media, but but I am I, I do share the kind of common common view of this, um, as does everybody. But these five five countries that you would expect, of course, Syria, North Korea, et cetera. Um, do you, you say that with a bit of skepticism? Do you think that 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 people have this wrong? And if so, how so? Oh, at this point, not me in terms of like, who's, who's right in this. Yeah. Oh no. I mean, he's completely wrong to have done that. I mean, it's, it's monstrous. And I, I think, uh, in addition to being, uh, a completely barbaric move, um, and, and, uh, really incompetently executed it, it it reminds me a lot of um, the first Chechen war. I'm, I'm actually writing about this now because uh, back in 1994, the Russians uh, basically said they were going to conquer Grozny in two hours, the defense minister. 
uh, said that uh, it would literally said it would take two hours, and they ended up having to basically level the entire city of Grozny and losing anyway. Um, and this is this is a lot like that. It's barbaric in the same way, and um, and yeah, it, it, and the Ukrainians are are playing also a masterful public relations game, uh, kind of internationally. Uh, and they're very skillfully trying to get um, Europe to get into the war and, and NATO uh, by establishing a no, no fly zone, doing some other things. Um, so yeah, no, nobody's got it wrong. I, I think I think the issue is, you know, we're we are overlooking a little bit of history about why this happened. I think what what Putin has done is totally irrational and and horrible and. I think even his own people understand it's a mistake, but um, he's been telling us he's going to do this for a long time. So I want to I want to touch on that. Uh, even his own people know it's a mistake because we hear leaks of, of that or like some media reports of you know celebrities or of just common Russian on the street just being outraged. Tennis players riding on cameras at various places. Um, you follow this stuff way closer than we do and have experience in it. What is your kind of uh, assessment or snap take of the size and the expression of public discontent in Russia and the kind of the meaningfulness of it? I mean, I think it's significant that that um, that you're you're seeing public protests. Uh, you know, they had they had a big thing in literature and I guess the other today that were. A lot of celebrities signed their name to a document that was full of kind of Putinite propaganda, but the, there isn't a whole lot of, um, I would say, nationalist fervor behind this in the same way that there was for the initial Donbass conflict. Like that was something that Russians were very animated about. This this other wider invasion of Ukraine is um, is not popular, from what I gather, uh, and. And there's there's much more appetite for pu- public expressions of that than than we've seen in a while. I mean, I, I have a, one reporter friend who, who's still over there um, who said, you know, the, in the public space here, there's no room for anybody who isn't saying hooray, hooray. Um, but that's what people are feeling. They're, they're feeling angry uh, about this, and, but they're just not saying you're just not seeing as much of it yet. I mean, so much so that things that have been allowed to kind of uh, peacefully coexist, pr- provided they remain very tightly in their lane of like Echo Moscow, which has had some leadership changes and some ideas that that, that Putin's people are trying to take it over. Uh, Rain TV, uh, Novoya Gazeta seems to be still on the Internet, but it's such a small uh, number of people that read that of sort of, you know, intellectuals that do. But um, what do you make of, and one thing that I think that we can start by, by agreeing on something, um, and because I think that probably on the, on the historical stuff that I know Matt and I uh, would probably disagree with you on that, but something to agree on here is that the, the weird reaction to start banning things, which is the, in the West, mm-hmm. is to start banning things like RT in Europe. And UK is Ofcom is looking into this right now. Um, in the US, it still exists. And I have a habit of watching... Uh, Russian television that I can't understand. Um, and just because you can get a good sense of what's going the on. Babes. I, I, it's just not in the background sometimes, but I yeah. can't get to the TV one website because it's been knocked offline by, um, by uh, anonymous, I suppose, for a number of days. But, um, but if you do turn on RT, it's amazing. There was one thing 
being played on a loop was just a documentary that was essentially about NATO and about the early 90s and had Rudy, uh, Rudy Giuliani. Ju- uh, I can't even say his name. It's so it's it, it comes out of my mouth like poison. Um, the guy with the black hair that shows up and says weird shit. He was in it. I don't know how they fucking got into it. But um, but uh, and that's essentially it. I mean, so there's no kind of war coverage as as it were that was like jingoistic and rah rah because there's not a lot to show. It seems so they have these kind of weird panels and that what's that, what's that guy Peter Saville or Saville or something like that Jimmy Saville. Um, the these guys that you would expect on um, uh, Chris Hedges, who shows up oh and, you know, plagiarizes on camera or something. <laughs> and, you know, th- that's it. That's basically it. And so then the, the, the response to this is saying we have to do something and ban Sputnik and ban RT. I, it strikes me that if you have that stuff on the air, they're losing the propaganda war so bad that it's actually beneficial to leave them on. Um, but what do you make of all this kind of instinct to, you know, ban everything Russian and especially the media. I, I'm really freaked. I mean, a hundred percent. I'm, I'm uh, the invasion is horrible. I think they should uh, as much of a pacifist of a, as I am. I'm, I'm inching toward the idea that some kind of intervention has is necessary. But um, but but this confiscation that there's this other kind of warfare that they're engaging in now where like mm-hmm. should i stop you there though cuz because i think you just broke news on your birthday that you've become the Richard Pearl of New Jersey. <laughs> what, what, what do you mean by intervention uh, would be necessary? I don't know. I mean i i yeah. I, 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 I don't know. I mean it, it's it, it's getting the, the look we're going to see on live television some pretty horrible stuff is going to take place in the and, next week. And and um, it's going to be very difficult and, and unusual to to look at that and and say we shouldn't do anything about it. Um, for the for the Russians, they you know the 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 calculus for them is they cannot lose this uh, military engagement. That's just it's a it's an existential uh, thing for them. So they will they will destroy whole cities and, and level populations if they have to do it. And they've shown in the past that that's where they will go there. Um, and it's going to be, I mean, I don't know. I mean, uh, it's, it's a difficult moral question. Um, you know, what do you, what do you do about that? What it's, but the problem is there are nuclear power and, uh, you know, they, some of the history here is complicated and are we going to make it worse by going in? Uh, would or more people be hurt? I don't know. I mean, there's, there's a lot of calculations there. Uh, but the, as to what your your, the, your question, that was the first thing that, that that I was really really freaked out about. You know, this the scenes of like Google Pay and Apple Pay shutting off services to people and mm-hmm. uh, ordinary Russians. Michael McFall, uh, somebody I know and can't stand, the former ambassador to Russia, um, who's still misspelling after all these years uh, in his tweets. Um, <laughs> he. Uh, you know, is basically saying that we have to inflict pain on the ordinary Russian people because they haven't overthrown their uh, their leader. Uh, that, uh, it's, it's with or either with us or against us. I mean, he was. It was the only that. thing that seemed to unite Twitter today, by the way, of like the, just the the kind of barbarism that was built into that tweet. Yeah, and and I think for for me coming on the heels of some other things that have happened over the last four or five years, whether we're talking about the. The Canada invoking the Emergencies Act and freezing bank accounts like this is 
This is the thing that makes me really nervous is yeah. this centralized sort of intelligence based uh, denial of services, the use of uh, the international banking system, payment processors. Um, I don't know. I mean, what do you guys think about that? Because it worries me I a lot. Say, I think that's right. And I would <laughs> say one thing on this is that, you know, we did four episodes last week, I think three of which were on on Patreon. And so we've talked about you know, the the historical stuff, NATO, etc. And I don't want to kind of elevate something that sounds like a smaller issue, but we have discussed a lot of that. Um, but I think that this is something that people are more okay with, because we're more okay with this idea of deplatforming as a remedy for bad ideas. And I believe that what comes out of the the television when RT is on is pretty noxious and and but but pretty easily debatable and and uh, refutable. But mm-hmm. this idea that like well let's get r- rid of Alex Jones and I, I I know that people will probably roll their eyes and think that this is a slippery slope. But I just think people accept it and cheer it on in a way that they probably would not have done twenty years ago. I mean, remember the conversation about the Iraq War was all about being mean to the Dixie Chicks. Right. People like saying we're not going to play their music anymore. Whereas now, I mean, there are what the Glasgow Film Festival is not going to show, um, you know, Russian films. I've met a lot of Russian filmmakers and it's always this is actually true. And it's always at like human rights conferences because they're always like kind of lefty anti Putin types. Right. These are not the people you should be hitting. And mm-hmm. that is the way to take a uniform, a unified sort of block of people with one opinion that is that is opposed to what the Kremlin is doing and start turning it in the other direction. Camille, yeah. uh, I mean, it must have been uh, watching the State of the Union yesterday. Like the two applause lines, uh, both were designed to inflame both Camille and uh, Matt Taibbi. One was, of course, uh, fund the police. Actually, Matt doesn't like that. Camille's starting to like that. Um, fund the police. <laughs> and uh, But the other one was like, you know, we're going to seize all the oligarch stuff. You got property? We're going to take it. And everyone's like, yes! Yeah. Take yeah. the property without due process. Uh, you must have had you a little bit freaked out there, Mr. Foster. Yeah, I mean, more than a little bit. And, and as Moina had mentioned, we did talk about this briefly on the Patreon. I think between, yeah. between the warfare that's taking place with respect to just seize, directing uh, these various institutions to seize people's financial, um, holdings, uh, one worries that like the definition of oligarch starts to get defined down and anyone with a tangential connection to the Putin regime might find themselves in a very difficult spot. And who do you appeal to at that point? Um, is this becomes a very convenient way for governments to perhaps, um, exact some, some, some swift justice, um, in cases where they might have otherwise had to prove their case in court, um, and actually, actually put up or shut up. Um, and I'm going to stop using metaphors at this point. It's a little bit weird. Um, That was on purpose. Um, but, but you have that happening at the same time that you have the censorship that Moynihan was just alluding to. And it is very odd. And I know we talked about this via text as well, that it doesn't seem that the censorship is making is gaining much ground in the United States or any place else. It doesn't even seem like it's particularly persuasive domestically for for Russia um, or Putin. Let, let's say, um, in which case, why bother banning it? Because I mean, that's not is- that's not what it's about. I, I I think this is a domestic. It's it's about domestic control to me. I I, I think. I mean. For the same reasons that they they chose Alex Jones as the first person to pull a coordinated stunt on, mm-hmm. because he was just universally loathed. I mean, who who's going to stand up and say like, no, like let's protect Alex? Jones. I mean, it, nobody's going to stand up and defend 
Putin now, uh, they're not going to be the person to say, let's not take uh, the belongings of the Russians. But look, this is, this is really dangerous mm-hmm. stuff that they're doing. And it's a, it's a very convenient moment to sort of slip in the idea that, um, when we need to, we, we can just sort of turn off, you know, these channels. Um, we can turn off some uh, political presence we consider noxious. Uh, that's really disturb. I mean, it's, it's, it should be really disturbing to people. It's not, um, mm-hmm. They've warmed us up for this moment. It's, so. it's funny, too. The, uh, we're going to talk probably in a second uh, or in a bit uh, about this Tulsi Gambard uh, video that Camille sent around that I have about a thousand problems with and pissed me off. But there was one bit in it that is actually relevant here when she uh, is talking about uh, three television stations. I mean, by the way, just to be clear, she clearly has no idea what she's talking about because she makes a bunch of like fundamental errors in it. But she says these three television networks that were taken offline by the Zelensky government, um, which is true. And it's true in the sense that they were kind of pro-Russian and they were they're owned by somebody who is, um, you know, who has a child whose godfather is Vladimir Putin. Uh, the European Union actually uh, opposed this and actually uh, said publicly the European Union rejects this action by the Zelensky government. And this was, I think, 2000, I think it was maybe last year probably February 2001, around there. And they publicly oppose this, and they're doing the exact same thing now. And you cannot have a principle that is malleable like that in switches because there's a horrible, horrible thing like this invasion, right? And we believe in this stuff or we don't, because what they applied to Zelensky before and saying it was wrong, and it was wrong, um, was it understandable? Yeah, I mean, that's the thing, is that's why, as Matt says, I mean, you start with the softest targets, where it is sort of understandable, where in a war, um, this is from the perspective of Ukraine, uh, in Donbass, for instance, and um, this person is funding it, and they say, oh, we, we have evidence that, that the money for this channel is coming from the Kremlin, and we're at war with these people, etc. It makes a certain amount of sense, but um, I don't think it does for... It, you know, writ large for all the, the reasons I just said. I would point out that the Department of Justice today announced a new uh, program or division or something called Klepto Capture. Oh, boy. Oh, God. That's going to that's going to be pretty good. It's I can't going, foresee any problems with that. <laughs> going to try to seize uh, the assets of sanctioned oligarchs. So. so, I mean, like I did a story maybe 10 years ago. No, actually, it wasn't that long ago um, on HSBC. Uh, doing a settlement with the Justice Department after they got caught, after they admitted to laundering over $800 million for, uh, among other people, the Sinaloa cartel in Mexico. And we're not seizing that money. Like, you know, so where, where's the, it, it, where's the, the, the consistency with this principle, if we're even going to do it? I, I think it's crazy that they're, they're just going to decide we're going to take the, the, the funds of this person or that person Based on what? Is there a process? Is there is there a way to appeal? Like, if it happens to you, um, where do you go? I mean, this is like, if you've ever done like a civil asset forfeiture case, this is like that, but it's on a much grander scale and it's political in a way that, you know, that is, I think, much more dangerous. What about yeah, no, uh, I, this idea? Oh, go ahead, Camille. Nope, you got it, Matt. I, um, I, I've been uh, wrestling with this and I'm just throwing this up to have you guys wrestle maybe a little bit too, because I suspect we share some uh, kind of uh, predilections uh, against having government do too many, you know, big bad things against countries in terms of warfare 
and uh, too many sanctions. Maybe Moynihan's more appetite for sanctions than I do. Um, but um, uh, and we at this and we also uh, at the same time uh, have so we you know would prefer that a lot of this would be hashed out in other fora rather than big you know klepto capture things. Um, at the same time, so you have this big amount of civil society and commercial society and things like that. Is it possible? I mean, we're seeing a ton of uh, kind of commercial breaks with Russia that seem to be like voluntary or, or you know, we don't want to uh, give Ovechkin any more, uh, you know, endorsement money in in uh, America. And Does Ovechkin I, I, have to do anything? Yeah. Nothing. Um, but he's probably a meathead. Um, uh, everybody's taking a few blows to the head over the years. Um, and, you know, my instinct is to say this is really bad. Is it possible that this is a way to... Uh, you know, in addition to maybe being bad, but it's also a way to um, engage in conflict without involving large armies. Like, are we is you know, are we sort of privatizing in a way that might be um, might be beneficial or might allow steam to blow off without actual big things blowing off um, uh, this kind of sense of conflict? I, I mean, I, I don't know. I'm kind of throwing I'm, I'm trying to work through it uh, as, as we go. Like it's. Um, you know, big, bad sanctions against countries make me really queasy. Um, and my instinct is to say that when we try to deplatform people between, you know, because they involved in something politically, that that's bad. It usually almost is, but it's kind of preferable to the big, bad, you know, government fest. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Yeah. I do. I, you know, Matt, go ahead. Sorry. No, you, you go ahead, Mike. No, I was just going to say that, you know, this we saw this really become a thing, become like a thing that was, quote unquote, voluntary. And it is voluntary, but it's voluntary in the way that, you know, kids do things that they don't want to do in front of a group of their friends. Right. Hmm. I mean, it's voluntary that everybody had a BLM statement ready when it was like, I don't know why Tampax is telling me what they believe about uh, the police. I just, I mean, it's, I really don't care, but it became this thing that everyone had to do. And you're seeing that again here of that the politicization of everything has meant that every corporation, every big company means that they have to get in. Russians are the bad guys here and they are the bad guys here. They are batting the bad guys. And I don't even, I'm not going to make this, I don't sound like Michael McFall, but everyone makes this stop and make the distinction. You know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the government, but this is not helpful. And it's, re it's not helpful because it's not helping the uh, people of Ukraine. It's unbelievably self-indulgent. It's about you. It's not about the people of Ukraine. Um, and you know, the, 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 the sanction stuff and the oligarch stuff, Let's be totally honest about this. You know, Matt was in Russia at a time when the oligarchs were becoming the oligarchs, right? And that became a thing and a term that was, that was, uh, was, you know, normal in conversation was becoming a term back then. Mm -hmm. And, but all of the oligarchs that became opponents of Putin's, think of like Boris Berezovsky. I mean, Boris Berezovsky was instrumental in making Putin the head of the Russian state, right? Without Berezovsky, there is, it's not that there's no Putin, but he really helped this along, right? It, think about Mikhail Khodorkovsky, who is jailed by Putin, but was friendly with Putin before. So are we not going to touch Khodorkovsky's money, which he's still, I mean, he gets out of jail, he goes to Switzerland, he's got, you know, his son lives in the United States, I'm sure there's a lot of money around, and I'm not sure that that money that was saved before he went to prison or was 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 squirreled away in places where the the um, kleptocrats in the Kremlin couldn't get to it. I mean, that's probably ill-gotten gains, too. I mean, people were not becoming 
oligarchs without cozying up to the government. A lot of them fell out with the government. Um, are we only going to target people who have said nice things about Putin? Because if that is the case, and if that is the case with even Ovechkin, and if people don't know who Alexander Ovechkin is, he's a, a, a hockey player for the Washington Capitals. I mean, are they saying that because he said something nice about Putin one time? Because I'm sure he has, right? I mean, as a lot of these pe- people have. And there's also different Putins at different times in, in, in his career. I mean, I believe they're all bad. But I think it's, it's much worse to say something nice about Putin right now than it would have been in 2000 or 2001. So if we have a minute, uh, th- th- this is like the one area where I am. Uh, it's like an area of expertise for me. I spent years on this. Uh, the, the oligarch class, uh, we we were instrumental in creating those people. Um, they the, essentially, the United, the United States. States. The staff the of the States. exile. Uh, the, yeah, the staff <laughs> of the exile. No, but particularly Especially America, that other guy. USAID uh, and a lot of consultants from Harvard um help design a series of privatization uh, efforts in 1995-1996 in particular a thing called loans for shares where essentially the Russian government lent the funds to a handful of cronies of the Yeltsin uh regime to buy controlling stakes in companies the size of like Exxon or AT&T and basically by putting no money down yeah. we we made the richest people on earth and this was a backroom deal that we brokered because Yeltsin was going to lose the 1996 presidential election to a communist, Gennady Zuganov. And the deal was that they were going to be given basically all this money uh, in exchange for a promise that they would financially support Boris Yeltsin's reelection effort and throw all of their political capital into making sure that that happened. Now, that all came acro- came about. They all got to keep their money. They they all became loyal, loyal to the uh, to the to the Yeltsin regime. When Yeltsin left, Putin basically gathered exactly the same people together, had a meeting with them, and said, "I'm offering you the same deal, except it's it's in, instead of uh, pledging allegiance to um, Boris Yeltsin and the sort of Western neoliberal international order, you have to pledge allegiance to me. You, you may not have your own political ambitions. If that's not acceptable to you, you must step out, uh, at this moment. And that's why Khodorkovsky, uh, ended up on the, him and Vladimir Gusinski were the two who basically got kicked out at that time. So this idea about going after oligarchs makes me crazy because this was a, this was partly conceived as an American plan to prevent uh, communism from coming back in Russia. Um, I get, I get that their support has been crucial to maintaining Putin's um, uh, regime, but they did the same thing under Yeltsin and we were fine with it at the time. And uh, that was also an autocratic system. The track record of America, even in, in places where it's, foreign policy is perceived perhaps rightly as being more um, benign or beneficial uh, than in other places like post-communist Europe with the exception of Russia and a few other places is that's how that's defined as opposed to the Middle East much less rosy glow but anytime even there Slovakia other places like that where there's an obvious you know a thumb on the scale by America of who we want to win the election it drives me bananas this can't possibly help stop 
stop even stop even saying you know endorsing either Viktor Orban or his opponent. It's kind of up to Hungarians, you know. Like just let that happen. You know, it, I I can't think of a whole lot of situations where direct kind of you know uh, USAID shenanigans, and that is a that is a uh, an organization that should have been euthanized in 1993. <laughs> should have been strangled. And the amount of corruption is is boggling in places like Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan. Oh my God. It is just, uh, it's a, a font. Our newspaper that, uh, from the early nineties in, in Prague was, would write about that stuff constantly. It's just terrible, but like that effort, just stop it, you know? And you pointed out Matt in your, one of your recent pieces of Richard Haas and some other people, McFall, I'm sure getting, uh, using words like regime change around drives me just bananas. Like yes. how, wh- what's it going to take you to realize that Americans, you know, dreaming of regime change in faraway countries, not not you know, rooting for people. That's fine. If you're an individual American, I don't want Orban to win. I think it'd be cool if he lost. And I think he probably will because of Russia or like it's possible at least. Um, but don't like do anything as an American government. Uh, it's amazing that we can't learn that lesson, I think. Yeah, I mean, uh, my experience over there, uh, people loved Americans when I first got to Russia in 1989, 1990. Uh, they worshiped the ground we walked on. By the time I left, you know, a little over a decade later, um, you know, they despised us. Uh, we had Americans who were pretending to be Canadian in town. Um, <laughs> they do that in Sweden too, though. Yeah. So. Yeah. Maple leaf flag. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but no, but the, the, uh, there were, there was a sense that we had actively meddled, especially in, in, 1996 and then the referendum in 1993 that we poured all this money into all these PR campaigns and we're constantly telling people, you know, that X is good and Y is bad. And, you know, the same way that people reacted badly to the idea of Russia meddling in our elections, Russia, they just didn't like the, even the appearance of it. And, um, you know, I, I think we lost an opportunity to win over, the Russian people because because they they loved us uh, at, the, at the start of this whole process. Was it ever really possible, though, in the sense that the I think one of the big mistakes that the U.S. made afterwards was um, being a little too chipper about how easy it would be to convert an economy that was sclerotic uh, since 1917 and, you know, operating on five year plans to something that could actually be. A, a liberal democratic state where people would just, you know, kind of maybe not be America, but maybe Italy <laughs> in four or five years. And that didn't happen. And of course, all this money coming in attracts criminals, as Matt points out, USAID and, and all the similar um, smaller organizations, just they, they can do nothing but attract corruption because they operate in countries where there's no rule of law. And it just, you go in and you steal what you can and no one really notices, or you have a cutout, steal what they can. So do you think that living there at the time, that there actually was a possibility that Russia could have gone, and I'm not, you know, like there's a thing in German history where they called the Zonderweg, the special path, where Germany was always going to be this, it was always going to be Nazi. It's sort of debunked, and I don't mean to suggest that there's a Russian version of that. But do you think that like, it could have actually been different um, had the U.S. Acted, acted in a different way. Substantially I different, I should say. I don't know. I mean, Matt, I don't know how you feel about this, but, um, you know, what, what, one of the, the results of the privatization effort, was, you know, the shock therapy idea was that you took 
a whole country full of people who they, they were basically all broke, but they had always had health care. They always had pretty good free education. Um, and they'd had some other benefit, you know, f- uh, free housing, free heating, some other subsidies. And those were the first things to go, you know, and, um, meanwhile, people saw, uh, you know, friends of the president instantly becoming owners of British soccer teams and, um, you know, not be- anymore. Well, not anymore. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> As of but, today. Uh, oh, is that true? Yeah, yeah, oh, he, he's wow. selling it as of today. It was it was going to be temporarily put in the hands of the club's kind of non non profit, and uh, announced today that he's selling it. And there's a Swiss billionaire that might buy it in a pretty fast transaction. Somebody who's mm-hmm. owned the team by the way for 22 years, and you know did a lot actually to 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 make them from a second tier team to a first tier team, and and really loved the game. Um, whatever you want to say about him. So, and I say that only to point out that I don't think he wanted to do this. What you what you do. Two, mm. two, two weeks ago saying, I want to get rid of Chelsea. And what right. you do is let him sell the team and then confiscate his ill-gotten gains. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, everything's mentioned, to my point before, everything's mentioned in the coverage that, mm. uh, of his uh, uh, friendship with Putin. Now, now, granted, uh, let's be clear, this wasn't forced. Mm-hmm. We have no evidence that, that the British government was, was forcing him, but we don't know. Maybe there was a, a fear of sanctions could, could hit him because they're a lot tighter than they've been in the past. We should also point out um, that privatization, uh, which is is necessary, and I, I know that there's uh, some people, especially on the left in, in Western countries, who see it as a dirty word, Thatcher and Reagan and all that kind of stuff. But you no, know, people, the, the the state owned the means of production; they owned everything. Like yeah. you, you have to you, you have to fix that problem. And so every country in post communist countries, they had they have to figure out a way to do it, and they all had different ways to do it. Some of the shock therapy indeed was like, okay, apartments, uh, you know, home heating oil, whatever. Those are the first thing to get liberalized. Actually, the checks um, under Vaslav Klaus, who was always uh, mistakenly billed as some kind of Thatcherite um, uh, and who's a big Putin crony now and has been for a long time. um, uh, He kind of liberalized that stuff last um, because Mm -hmm. he was trying to win elections, um, uh, winning more than one election. Um, But uh, they also in in Czechoslovakia... um, had a thing called coupon privatization. The first privatization there, they uh, uh, allowed uh, individuals in the country to have small shares into small shops, the local bakery on the corner. Okay, this used to be state owned, so um, you know, let's we'll we'll create a fictitious number of shares, a thousand shares for that thing. Okay, and everyone in the country gets I forget what the amount was, but two hundred shares, which then you could sort of figure out what to you know. All right, I'll invest in this, and part of the idea, which. Uh, uh, struck me at the time as a 22 year old or 23 year old who doesn't know shit um, as kind of brilliant, right? Like it was sold as you're going to do, take a crash course in uh, the capitalism of ownership. That sounds pretty cool. Right. Um, and it seemed like that was a pretty cool way to go. Um, and then a bunch of people came in uh, fraudsters, uh, including this guy named Victor Kojeny, who became one of the biggest criminals in, in, um, in the Czech Republic and in central Europe. Um, uh, because there became a moment when you could buy your little coupon privatization and then um, flip 
what you invested it in to somebody else. And so he came in and, and started Harvard Capital Consulting. And I'm sure there's a billion things like that in Russia. And it's just absolute <laughs> that's bullshit. It has no connection with Harvard. Amazing. That's amazing. Like, we called Harvard, big university. <laughs> Capital, yes. And and what he said is like your 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 shares, which are nominally worth, let's say, you know, uh, two thousand crowns, I'm gonna pay you ten thousand right now. Um and people are like, shit, really? I'm gonna five X here you go. And then this started an entire process of just miraculous amounts of corruption. Meanwhile, um, a country like Hungary, which got to start much earlier, right? The goulash communism, they were the freest, uh, freest camp in the barracks, freest barracks in the, in the, in the, in the prison system or whatever. Um, they, uh, sold GE, uh, the government did in 1980, or not GE, they sold their uh, light bulb factory to GE in 1988, tongue term, mm-hmm. right? For like, I don't know, $500 million, let's say. And they just sold it to him. All right. You're the highest bidder. Cool. Uh, you, you own a hundred percent. Uh, take out the middleman. Um, we got to get the guy in the podcast who was like, went into a meeting at GE and he's like, I got a great idea. There's a light bulb factory in Romania. And everyone's like, wait, what? <laughs> no, 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 seriously. Check it out. This is cool. This is going to be good. <laughs> my old, uh, my old pal, Bob Shear has a, a book uh, here on my shelf somewhere that has a great, uh, piece about how uh, Pepsi taking Moscow like in the in the 1980s that he wrote for either the LA Times or, or Playboy. It was a weird time. The types of people who would do business out there then they were some fucking weird cowboys. Uh, but it is true it is true can, that can we, you you get a something that is if you have some sort of democratic institutions, Russia obviously didn't have that and hasn't had that in a very 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 long time if ever. And you have a place like Germany, where the eastern part of the country now lags significantly behind the West. And that is history, of course. But the levels of corruption that you got were nothing like in any other in, in other countries. The, their oligarchs didn't exist, you know, after cannibalizing East German, like, you know, car mat factories or something. I mean, Treuhand, the, the organization that actually did the privatization, where the, the head of Treuhand was actually assassinated. Uh, by uh, claimed to be by somebody from the Red Army faction in 1990 or 91. I mean, it was a pretty controversial thing, but it didn't end up with the with, with what happened in places like Russia and other places in Eastern Europe. I mean, they could they could in the case of Germany, you know, import law uh, from a familiar place. Uh, yeah, I think they, one it, was, of the, it was all it was all built for them. Yeah, without without getting anywhere in the weeds, it's just uh, like the question. One of the questions with Russia and some of the more uh, messed up countries is. Can you privatize before you have even kind of a legal system yet? Uh, any kind of tradition of this. Um, everybody got privatization at least somewhat wrong or shock therapy at least somewhat wrong. There's some, some countries did it better than others. And our view of it, uh, over time has changed. The people who we thought were the darlings for a while, uh, turned out to have done it really wrong. It is a legitimately hard question to do. Um, and it doesn't necessarily, discredit the notion itself which is that the state shouldn't own all the beer factories it really shouldn't you have to figure out a way to have beer factories and you have to be able to liberalize prices in most sectors uh unless you're of course you're victor orban who is re um re uh in in imposing price controls in hungary much to the delight of uh national conservatives in uh, in the united states The, the advantage of having a conversation with a group like this and not being on Twitter is no one can jump in and just say, what about ism? Um, because we, we <laughs> talked about an, a range of different things, the sort of culpability of the United States government and its various institutions and in helping to create Vladimir Putin in the first place. We've talked about, um, kind of the complexity of actually trying to enforce sanctions regimes and to go after the, the finances. 
as well as to, to do censorship, essentially, against who is someone who's becoming, uh, I think it's fair to say, like a, a military and economic political adversary, a global adversary. Um, th- these are these are legitimate concerns. And one can say those same things and simultaneously say, I am I am outraged by what's happening in Ukraine, perhaps even think we ought to do something more than we're currently doing, as difficult as that is. Um, we could talk about a bunch of different stuff, like uh, the, the calls for a uh, no-fly zone in Ukraine um, and, and the, the sort of the wisdom of that policy. But I am interested in talking about this uh, piece that was in The New Yorker, because I keep finding people uh, talking about this at a, a good bright friend uh, mentioned that they found this essay and found it very interesting because they had not heard these arguments before but it's uh why john mersheimer uh blames the u.s for the crisis in ukraine um and oh, so you're mad that matt Ataibi and i and matt welch are all agreeing right now and you just want to mix it up i think that's that's part of the responsibility right. here on the podcast all right fine and we and we haven't had anyone talk about the united states Hope the bear by responsibility which I mean, being completely responsible yes. for all of this um <laughs> I, I wonder matt i'll go to you first because it's your birthday and because i want to provoke a conflict conflict um like what what did you make of this piece i mean i i kind of agree with him look for for the russians i suppose i I should have laid out the the argument that's on offer in the piece but perhaps i'll I'll defer to you and and let you actually contextualize it a little bit since i haven't at all it's really not complicated it's just basically the the, in, in great power politics which is what he calls it uh a great power would not allow a distant military power to set up, um, you know, a presence right over their borders. So, like we would, we wouldn't allow it in Mexico. We have the Monroe Doctrine. We didn't allow mm-hmm. it in Cuba. Um, Americans, you know, if they were thinking about this from the uh, from their own perspective they, and imagining what it would look like to them, uh, they would probably understand it a little bit better. For Russians, the idea of NATO. Um, in Georgia or Ukraine is just totally unacceptable. And this is not me saying it like this, like the current head of the CIA, William Burns, uh, Biden's head, uh, once said that, that NATO membership for Ukraine was the brightest of bright lines. Um, that it was for that, that was fertile soil for, uh, Russian meddling in Eastern Ukraine. Um, you know, everybody from, Pat Buchanan to uh, Noam Chomsky to Kissinger to to um, God, I'm leaving some people out, but it, it, basically, universally, people recognize that Russians view uh, the the expansion of NATO as a provocation, and whether you agree with their point of view about this or not, it was predictable eventually that they might react like this, um, and I. I just question the wisdom of doing it. Like, what? Why did NATO really continue to need to exist after the fall of the Soviet Union? What's the upside to to bringing in Ukraine and and Georgia? I mean, it's it's tough to it's tough to make that argument now because now it seems like the answer is obvious. But you know, it, we just don't know whether it would have worked out this way. Um, if we hadn't had the policy, and Mearsheimer is arguing in the piece that that it wouldn't have worked out that way. I mean, just to be clear, I mean everyone knows this, but to be clear, you know, there has been no ascension to NATO for Georgia or or Ukraine, 
And the example that people did do find this to be, I mean, the Russians are very clear about it, um, that, that the United States and NATO members find this problematic or controversial is the fact that it still hasn't happened. And there's probably nobody who needed it more than two countries that have been invaded by Russia in the past 15 years. So it is, I mean, why is it needed is, is demonstrated by where the tanks are. And that's in Abkhazia, Ossetia, Donetsk, and now all over, um, not all over, but, but, you know, around, surrounding, uh, Kiev, right? I mean, so that's, I mean, there's a, there's a pretty good case to be made that a revanchist, expansionist, imperialist, and I know that Mersheimer plays this, bizarre game where he says, no, no, this is great power politics. This is, um, and that, and that actually pissed people off on both sides. People imagine like, you know, Chris Hayes going, you know, this is what I hate about, <laughs> but a guy who I agree with, why does he have to just deny that it's imperialism and sounds a little too cozy to, to Moscow. But, you know, the fact that it didn't happen, people take Ukrainians out of this equation, right? So there's a poll today, which is a very, very bad time to do a poll, obviously. Um, of Ukrainians. But, you know, I, I think it's a fairly honest poll because it's not juiced in any way, like a lot of the numbers you see coming out for casualty figures or, or lowered on one side and juice on the other side. But said slightly over 50% of Ukrainians right now um, want to join NATO. It's not a very high number. You'd imagine it'd be, be higher. But there has been a desire for within Ukraine and I think that probably the, the, this invasion maybe makes people say, whatever we can do to get people to stop doing this to us, uh, let's do it. Let's be neutral. I mean, I can imagine that being an instinct, too. But previously, there has been a desire of people in Ukraine to be members of the European Union and to be members of NATO. That is their decision. And that is entirely up to them. And this Russians saying that they have a sphere of influence. I mean, the, the whataboutism and the hypocrisy stuff, I, I get it. And we can have a conversation about whether that's a, not a, a useful term. But when, you know, we say that something like this happens, you know, in, in, in Cuba, you know, we, we, if America did something like this in Cuba and had done something like this in, in, you know, 1961, I suppose, with the Bay of Pigs invasion, um, that we wouldn't allow that. We would say that this is this is a, a terrible thing. It works both ways, right? I mean, it, it works both ways in the sense that, you know, you have a, a neighbor threatening you on your border. And the natural thing is to say, hey, can you guys help us here? Can you can you back us up? And, you know, Russia is going to be offended by this. OK, you know, there's probably a lot of things that offended America in the Cold War. And there are things that maybe Noam Chomsky and John Mersheimer would be opposed to. So I think there's some measure of consistency here is that the hurt feelings of the Russians, and particularly of Vladimir Putin, because we don't know what the Russians actually think about this. It's very hard to get a sense of, of what Russians think about anything in a country that is um, an authoritarian place. Um, and you can, I mean, there's no free judiciary. I mean, there's free speech codified into the 1996 constitution, but it doesn't exist. Um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But you know, the, on the, on the NATO question, it's, it's, everyone says essentially the same thing. I abhor what happened, but it's our fault for, for bringing this on. No, I, not a I'm, no, I'm not saying, I'm not saying you're saying this, Matt. I'm saying, but I've heard this. And Mersheimer basically says it's, I mean, Chris Hedges had a column. It's our fault. It's our fault. That's it's the, a, no, that's the no, headline it's, on the 2014 piece that he wrote. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and that's, and that's not, no, you have the ability to be offended and think that your neighbor who used to, you used to occupy, but who in the 1930s, you created a genocide by starving them to death, which Russia still denies, of course, with certain elements in Russia deny, but you have that kind of neighbor. It doesn't surprise anyone to say that they're going to take these positions or the governments are going to take these positions. 
And you cannot say then that we, it's, it's, it's just this narcissism. It's always America. We're always the hidden hand behind everything. And these people have no agency. But if it is America's fault for this, I mean, does it mean that anytime you do something like that, it makes perfect sense to invade and destroy a country or even invade part of a country as happened in 2014? Or grab another part of a country that's happened in 2014, too. No, I, I, I'm not saying that at all. I'm, I'm just yeah, and again, I, to be clear, I'm not saying that you are saying this. I'm just saying that there's a, I've read a lot of this recently. I, I, I just, I question the wisdom of, of, um, of feeling that, that that's the only way we, that we had to go. I think there was another way. I think, first of all, the Ukrainian and Russian people there are deep and profound connections there in lots of different ways in some ways it's entirely negative but they have had long-standing lingual cultural um connections I, I, my my guess is that um if they had we had adopted a policy of trying to encourage some kind of neutrality for um for Ukraine uh, work out a security agreement, even maybe even with Russia back when we were, we had people in the Kremlin, um, you know, who were, uh, had prof profound influence on Russian policy that maybe some of this could, could have been avoided. But, I, I, but isn't that I, what I happened? Mean, there was an agreement in, there was in an agreement in 1994 or that right? we will, we will. Security uh, guarantees were part of that yes, agreement in exchange yeah, for we, giving we, up nuclear weapons. Yeah, right. But we also we also we also gave guarantees to Russia that we weren't going to leapfrog any country any countries towards leapfrog NATO um, towards their borders uh, when we there were negotiating. There wasn't any guarantee of that. That's not that's nothing like. Well, a I, I mean, I interviewed the the uh, Melvin Goodman, the CIA agent, who talked to both. Shepard Nazi and James Baker, they both d described it in identical terms, the negotiations between the United States and the Soviet Union at the time. And they both, they, they both used the word leapfrog. They both talked about how the United States promised not to move toward uh, Russian borders. Now, is that meaningless? Maybe, you know, I don't know, but, but the I mean, Russians it's not are written. I mean, there's a, the, the 1994 Budapest memorandum, whatever the hell it was called, um, it was, is written. The security guarantees are, are, are codified there. The, uh, the, um, allegations, I think, um, uh, or the reporting that there was a guarantee at the time of reunifying Germany, which is a different question than what eventually becomes the expansion of NATO, um, strikes me as different. Um, you know, it's not written in that i think the the idea that a security guarantee could be come out uh could be cobbled together um uh it butts up against the uh the notion of, of that we had one and this is what a security guarantee not backed by uh some kind of credible security organization regardless of what one thinks of nato i would prefer that there was a european based one that had nothing to do with the United States. Um, and I think that was the great opportunity lost in the mid, in the early 1990s. Yeah, um, I mean, that's another route that might, might've made sense. Right. Uh, but they did sign a, they did sign a thing. There was a security guarantee. Um, it sounded not, you know, if, if not neutral, it was a mutual agreement between the superpowers of, yeah, cool. We're not going to violate their borders. Um, well, they can uh, stand down their nukes and uh, we're going to make sure that we're not going to do it. Uh, you know, we'll guarantee their security in the meantime. Doesn't work. It didn't work. Uh, transparently um and that's 
uh, I think the 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 buffer zone notion of a country um, uh, butts up against that uh, that kind of messy reality of of great power relations. I would also say about the Mearsheimer thing. So the the Camille said uh, uh, reference a New Yorker thing. It's an uh, interview with Isaac Chotner and, and John Mearsheimer about now um, and like revisiting the 2014. Again, I don't know why anyone agrees to be interviewed by Isaac. <laughs> it's just no, like, don't do it. It's don't always going to end up that way, right? Um, uh, it was very interesting among the things that Mearsheimer said that I disagreed with is that um, the idea that Putin is uh, uh, a hostile imperialist aggressor is invented has been invented by the West or by America. Um, I, I, well, that's, I, just, I mean, look, he, he's, he, I mean, he openly talks about wanting to, to restore the, yeah, the uh, Soviet but, borders. So well, I, mean, I don't understand. Uh, um, I don't know what I would call my foreign policy anymore. Um, but Matt, and, doesn't that actually go up against the idea that this is, you know, even that big of an issue that NATO or no NATO, uh, Vladimir Putin desires Russia to expand back to its previous borders? Well, I, th- I mean, there's different versions of what expansion looks like. Um, they probably would have been happy with. Uh, I, I don't know. I'm guessing that that if there if Ukraine existed and it had a a, a Russian friendly government and there were no, there were no NATO advisors doing military exercises over the border, that they would feel better about that than they would. They, they, you wouldn't have to formally call that territory Russia. Um, for them and, to be. And having talked to Russians about this and, and, um, and, you know, I've heard this from a number of people too. And you say that there's, you know, a lot of skepticism and a lot of, you know, worry that there'll be a NATO, uh, power on its borders. What does that actually mean to, I mean, I know what it means to Vladimir Putin and, you know, it's to Mearsheimer's point of like, you know, big power politics. Uh, what does it mean to the average Russian who I suppose, you know, if we have any good polling on that, I, I suspect it's, you know, probably going to be, um, negative to having NATO on the border, but you know, NATO's NATO's never started an aggressive war. I mean, it's not as, as if there's a there's a track record of NATO invading neighboring countries or something. What is the problem? Maybe not NATO, most- but the the West has certainly uh, invaded Russia many times over, and that's a profound part of their history. I mean, uh, define your the terms I, there, like the West and the invasions. What do, what do you specifically? Refer well. To? From Napoleon to to the the, the Germans, World War I. And, well, you know uh, the the Crimean War is a little different, but the I mean the big one obviously is World War Two, and and that's still steeped in the cultural memory of of modern Russia. I mean, when I was there, uh, there was still a massive deficit of males in the country because because the the uh, so many people had died during World War. Two, um, there's no family in Russia that doesn't have a story about some horror that they experienced uh, during that time period. And so they are deeply, they, they, they have this really strange attitude toward the West. They, there's an inferiority complex. There's a fascination with the West. There's, there's this feeling that we want to, we want to become European. This goes all the way back to your Peter the Great. Um, then at the same time, there's this tech, there's this deep paranoia about western influence that that someday uh we're going to end up having to fight them that they're going to come here that they're they're trying to manipulate us that they're trying to take us over um it's it's hard to explain but these these feelings are all there for the 
for educated Russians and kind of the ordinary person at the same time. Um, and so in the same way that like mass audiences in America watch a movie like 13 days, right? And they get all riled up and patriotic about the idea of, well, we have to, you know, blockade, do a blockade around Cuba to make sure, uh, get those missiles out of there. That's a feeling that, you know, there, there, there are going to be a lot of Russians who will feel that way about NATO. Um, it's, it's maybe lessening now, but, but when I was there for sure, that was, that was the thing. It's worth pointing out, um, cause it affects the calculus of what's happening, including, of the kind of miraculous almost uh, absorption of refugees in a place like Poland that Poles also have memories. Um, it might even be a little bit more, more uh, fresh in their brains, uh, as do the Czechs, as do Hungarians, as do Slovaks. Well, the and worst that- memory, yeah, is to, 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 to people in the West don't remember at all is that September 1st, 1939 was an invasion on both sides. The Russians invaded on the east and the Nazis invaded on the west. And, you know, that's quite a memory to hold, too. And so the uh, the idea that they would want to pursue a security guarantee from both sides, east and west, because um, there wasn't a lot of distrust. There was a lot of distrust for uh, for Germany reunifying, not just in London, but <laughs> in Central Europe as well. Uh, but that that is the motivation. I mean, it, there's it's I mean, uh, I think most Americans don't really care about the Baltics in any organized, meaningful sense. Um, uh, but the Baltics sure do. And if you're a small country that has been unfairly, uh, and against all international promises swallowed by Stalinist Russia in 1940 or 41, and you have your toddling independence, man, you really need yourself a security guarantee against this big country right over there. Uh, I totally get it from where they're, where they're coming from. And, and I think, uh, respecting historical memory is important, but it's also important in both directions. And, you know, and I say no, this I, someone I, who don't, I don't want NATO to, to admit Ukraine or Georgia. And I wish that it hadn't happened in Montenegro. It's ridiculous to me or Croatia. Um, but I understand small country wishing guarantees against Russia. I mean, my God, there's going to there's going to be a, a line at the door for NATO uh, going forward after what we've seen this past week. Of course, and and look, as far as the Baltics go, I, you know, I, I used to have to go to to the Baltics every time to renew my visa, so I was there constantly. Oh man, uh, and, like three uh, months or one month, yeah, or something like that for for years and years and years. So I spent a lot of time in all those countries, especially Estonia. But the, you know, the the First of all, culturally, they're very Western oriented. It's very different than most, almost the entire rest of the Soviet Union. Um, they're, they're culturally very distant from Russians in a way that the other republics aren't. Um, and they have, you know, absolutely no interest in being part of Russia's sphere of influence. There's, there, it's not the same way in Ukraine and Moldova and, Georgia and some other places where the, the ties are long standing historical, linguistic, and in all other ways, it's much more complicated in those places. And that's why the, the NATO question that this, this is, this is why I, I, I worry about this because a lot of American diplomats that I saw come in sort of looked at all these republics and said, let's just apply the same formula to all of them. You know, yeah. like let's, let's do the same economic policies. Let's make the same security offers and and they're all different and Russians viewed it in, 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 um, you know, they felt like they they were being treated as a vassal state and that it just didn't work. Um, I just think as a strategy, this, it it ended up being, you know, 
I would say I would say that you know it's interesting talking about this too is that that strategy um, in the hands of other people is that obviously Vladimir Putin's gamble here was a very bad gamble and he's going to lose the the if they take Kiev tomorrow they're going to be bled dry in Kiev this is a people that is they're not going to put down weapons and just come back and go back to ordinary life but we see it um in both Ukraine and Georgia I mean uh, Georgia's run by the Georgian Dream Party which after Saakashvili left, shall we say, um, was considered that Georgian Dream was going back into Moscow's orbit. The ruling Georgian Dream Party today said, we are fast-tracking as fast as we can our membership to the European Union. Uh, Ukraine said the same thing and signed the papers and sent the papers over. That's obviously that. It didn't seem like that was going to be in the cards in, you know, July of last year. And it's the actions that are taken, to your point about the reactions, in those countries, you're like, no, we already had a bit of our land cleaved off in an illegal way in, in Georgia and Abkhazia and Ossetia, South Ossetia, and we don't want any more of that happening. We don't need to have grand Soviet designs on Stalin's birthplace again. So, I mean, it, it, the reaction of, of, of countries, I mean, Finland debating in parliament, applying for membership to NATO. In Sweden, talking about, I don't think it'll ever happen in Sweden. I lived in Sweden long enough to know that that was... That was a, a red line in Sweden for liberal uh, left of center parties in, in, in Sweden. But yeah, I mean, you see all this stuff happening. I mean, the calculation here is fantastically stupid. And I cannot imagine when you have people that are even pro Kremlin people. I saw this interview with somebody today who's, you know, was I labeled as some sort of Kremlin, you know, advisor. Those things can be somebody who walked through the door one time and saying that I don't know what on earth he thinks he's doing. And it demonstrates two things of like the loosening up of people being able to publicly criticize a government that they are involved with or work for. And the fact that nobody seems to have any sense of what the fuck this guy has in mind. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so much so if you get to this point, which I always think is a bad, it's time to uh, turn, uh, turn around and walk the other way. So bad that people are trying to figure out by you know, reading the tea leaves of photographs and how he's sitting and how fat his face is if he has some sort of disease that is that is literally <laughs> ravaging his brain. And that's, I mean, Lori Garrett, who I think won a Pulitzer Prize, she was like the AIDS um, researcher and uh, written about it, said he probably has long COVID. Oh, dear God. I, I swear to God, huh. she actually said that. And it's like, that's a, le- a certain level of stupid that one wouldn't expect to <laughs> get COVID back into the conversation because I mean, it appears the, to have, the- you know, died along with... Along with um, you know, peace in, in Europe. All the cable nets were trotting out there. I just spoke to a third-ranking defense uh, specialist off the record, and uh, they're really worried that Vladimir Putin might be crazy. Uh, you know, <laughs> can, I, can I just say this? Because I've been sending these things to you guys, and I'm sure this... I just have a sense that it pisses Matt off, too. So I'm just going to bring up, like, Twitter is obviously always horrible, right? It's especially horrible in times like this for a variety of reasons, but my favorite is this instinct to say, just talk to a friend in X and they say something that's really banal because that's all they know too. I mean, they're like watching the same television channel. It's like my friend in Moscow just said, People are getting a little upset about this. You're like, yeah, no, no shit. There's a lot of kids coming home in boxes, you dumb fuck. Of course they're getting upset about it. Like, what do you, I mean, are you joking? And then my, and my favorite thing is that um, now the journalists who are in, and there's a couple mm. in particular, who are, who are in Ukraine. And I, my favorite one was like, every morning, like this one, this guy, this morning, I sent you guys this one, woke up and he's like, I, I, I woke up today. I'm okay. I'm, and he said, I'm Ugh. alive. And it's like, 
Yeah, you know, there's probably 4,000 kids down the street who were died in a grad rock, rocket attack in a fucking, you know, middle school. And you're saying, I'm alive. Everybody like, Jesus Christ, I can go. I can go have my coffee now. He's alive. But there was in, in saying the same person was saying, like, I, I think I have PTSD. Oh, you? you? You're American. Are you kidding? You think you have PTSD? And then raising money in the same fucking tweet. Like, literally, here's my cash app. It's like, I, I assume you're going to take that money and give it to the fucking Ukrainians who need it and not just, and everyone's like, yeah, I'm donating. I'm donating. For what? You're in the, you work for the Atlantic Council. Now I'm revealing who it is. Sorry about that. I mean, geez, not going to give a fuck. Shots fired. And and by the way, this guy, I'm sorry, this fucking drove me crazy. (laughs) This guy's like, you know what? I'm learning to live with the haters. It's like you're in the uh, you're in Kiev and it's like being surrounded by Russians and you're talking about haters on Twitter, dude. Dude, let me tell you, you got something screwed up. Something's wrong. Priorities are fucked up. There's a lot of this stuff of like, you know, people are treating me so nice here as a journalist. That's what's amazing. He's going to find out about this and then he's going to start tweeting about this from Ukraine. I know because I assume he's (laughs) listening to podcasts (laughs) in the middle of uh, like a a battle because maybe they mentioned It'll get back to him. It'll get Jesus fucking Christ. DMs are open. Just as as a general question, wasn't there a time when journalists were supposed to be kind of tough? Like, you know, hey, is that the is burning tank in my shot? masculinity. Yeah, you know, yeah, like, yeah. You know, yeah now, we, now we share our feelings. And yes. if you're having some sort of mental distress and you're a multi-millionaire what would happen basketball if Ernie, player, you just, just sit the season out. We'll pay you anyways. It's fine. Yeah. I mean, so if Ernie Pyle had Instagram, would he have been taking shots of like the burning building and look that's my favorite thing is the other the reporting nobody seems to write they just have these dispatches in which they point out that buildings have been hit by things which tells me nothing right. yeah you know i know there's a war going on like you see right they, they hit here today it's like okay this will be interesting in a game of like risk in the future when i'm looking at sort of military <laughs> patterns but right now it's like what's going on why yeah, what's, is this what's happening the context of that what's exactly. the context yeah. it is so absolutely maddening that that there is this i mean i don't think but i will say that there are people that are actually reporting and don't go on instagram and don't talk about themselves here's the first rule of reporting from a war zone and i'm just saying somebody who's not a war reporter don't nobody cares about you right don't make it about you just stop i'm okay i don't fucking care you know (laughs) i I chose to be here (laughs) you chose yeah you're you're doing your job i don't get like a text from the guy at the fire department when there's like a building on fire he's like i got out i'm like i don't even know you what's what are you doing why are you telling me this (laughs) during the uh yugoslav war we've already go ahead go ahead no, 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 I was no, going to no. say that we've we've kept Matt for for longer it's than birthday. promised. Birthday. Birthday. And no, it's, and I'm it's yelling about birthday. people on Twitter. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, it's it's your birthday. You should, you should. Yeah, <laughs> um, uh, Matt. I I mean, obviously, we've talked about a lot of stuff here, but given that you your in, in early suspicions were off about whether <laughs> or not the invasion would happen, now that we've had it happen, and mm-hmm. we're kind of saying that Vladimir Putin might be crazy, do you have any instincts as to why? Now, because I think a, a number of people keep asking themselves that. And I, I suspect why this time is different, so to speak, why this seems to be so unsettling is both the scale of the operation, but also just the suddenness of it. And the fact that it seems so inexplicable, which I suspect is part of what's creating so much consternation for European leaders in particular. Yeah, I mean, anybody who's followed Putin, you know, going back to his early days when he was deputy mayor in St. Petersburg, he's always been thought of as a person who was, you know, maybe amoral, maybe corrupt, um, 
may, may be very quick to resort to violence. Um, but he was always considered cold, pragmatic, and calculating and rational. Uh, and the image of him in Russia, even among his kind of fiercest detractors, um, has always been that he, he does the thing that he thinks is smart first. Uh, he can be vicious. Absolutely. We've seen that in all those other places that might be mentioned, you know, Abkhazia, Ossetia, you know, uh, Another other parts of the former Soviet Union, Second but, Chechen War, yeah, the, the Second Chechen War. I mean, and I was I was uh, part of the I was around when the Nova Gazeta crew was investigating those apartment bombings, and oh for my some God, way, yeah, and, and I, that's one of the craziest conspiracy theories that actually might be true. It might uh, be true, yeah. Um, and if that is true, that's like one of the most. Uh, horrifying things you can possibly imagine is massacring yeah. your own people just as a pretext to go into um and, and for people who don't know that there is there's a lot of actual evidence in that story yes uh, a real police investigation or you know the forensic evidence uh, an admission by the fsb that they were there that they were conducting an exercise i mean there's it's bags it's of sugar that's what bags they of sugar put, yeah, put but in it the was, basement. yeah but it was hexogen anyway um uh, Cast all that aside, we always thought of him as the person who was doing something for a reason. And you'll, if you look on Twitter, you'll, or, or you know, in the, in the news landscape, you'll see all these people who are criti- critics of him being like flabbergasted that, that that this happened. They just didn't see it. It's it's it seems out of character um, because they they thought he was playing a long game that he was going to do an exercise that he was going to try to uh, use his leverage with energy in germany to to wedge um create more divisions between europe and the united states and that seemed like a track that he was going to pursue uh maybe ending with recognizing the the two republics you know luhansk and 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 donetsk um but nobody's I, i don't know anybody who saw this uh and it seems like um there's, I, I don't know what the explanation is. I don't, I don't know. I, and I, and as for the end game, you know, I've heard it theorized that basically, basically he's going to keep up the bombardment and then try to, um, negotiate some kind of, uh, deal where he gets to keep the Eastern holdings and doesn't really do anything in the West. But why do that? Like, why, why the full fledged invasion? Then I, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I, I mean, don't know, it seems you, like a, a colossally bad way of negotiating because if you want U- Ukrainians to all rally around a president that was controversial and went from a 75% approval rating to about 40% and now is over, I think 140% right now. <laughs> right. Um, you know, or as you said, this idea of splitting uh, the Europeans and the Americans. And the idea there is that the Europeans would be more dovish than the Americans and the exact opposite turned out to be true. Yeah. That the Europeans became, you know, we are going to send, uh, you know, uh, every weapon that we can possibly send legally. They don't, they don't have a lot, but yeah. they don't have a lot. But, you know, <laughs> 5000 anti-tank weapons coming from Sweden. Um, I mean, I think they just like were borrowing them from people at a certain point. But, yeah, it is bizarre that, you know, everything if both of those things were part of the calculation, both of them turned out to be fantastically wrong. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what. What what you all think the end game is here? I have no clue. I mean, um. it doesn't make any sense to me. Um, and it, and it's on top of that, it's horrible. And 
all of the all of the possible endings to the story are terrible. Um, you know, including if we if we get involved, that is going to be really bad. It's I mean, like it's, nightmare it's, scenario, yeah, like legitimately I mean, it, a nightmare scenario, and 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 it's yeah. not merely. And I suppose most people listening, especially this far, like have an understanding of what the concerns are. But this is this is uniquely dangerous, given the kind of nuclear dimensions here um, and the just general uncertainty of everything. Um, yeah, it's a, it'd be a very bad look. Um, yeah, and- I mean, the nuclear <clears throat> thing, by the way, just one comment on that is that you can do that only so far. And you just have to accept that. You know, and always kind of operate in some sense that like this is bravado and a threat um, because you can keep using that. Right. I mean, you can roll into uh, Latvia, Lithuania. I'm not saying this is going to happen. It's not going to mm-hmm. happen. I don't think it's going to happen. I don't fool's game. I've realized making predictions like this. Um, but just say oh, nuclear power, nuclear power. There's a certain point when the nuclear power goes so far that you have to say, fuck it. We need to do something about this. Yeah. Yeah. It's just sort of what I worry about is the General Buck Turgidson characters uh in both <laughs> both uh de- defense ministries who are going to be like i'm not i'm not saying we're not going to get our hair must a little bit you know but uh you know it'll be 10 percent top 20 20 percent casualties tops you know there, there are going to be those voices who are who are going to who are going to advocate for that I, I i just worry about that eventuality um and you know the russians have proven that they um that they're not they haven't been rational uh, in this situation, which is uh, deeply disturbing. So. And I think that every time we've talked about this in four or five consecutive podcasts, we I've said this, and it's worth considering, is that if we were to, and I don't trust these numbers, but if we were to take the Ukrainian numbers of Russian killed in action, not total casualties, but killed in action, that would be three times the number of people that died in Afghanistan in a 22-year war in five days. Is 6, of Americans, people not that? people, Americans. Oh, yeah, not people. Yeah, that's what I mean, America. I'm talking about military stuff here. I'm not yeah, talking yeah, about yeah. the ordinary people. Who cares about them? They're just there to to move around in the chessboard, Matt. Um, no, that's, I mean, and, and, and double the number of Americans who died in Iraq, 3,200 uh, American servicemen killed in action in Iraq. Um, and if they're saying 6,000-something in a handful of days, that is truly shocking. It that sounds like truly, the, truly shocking. The Russians in, are in, actually acknowledging closer to 2,000. Well, not I think you said 500 no, casualties. No, 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 it's like 500 casualties yeah. and something like 1,200 injured or something like that. Yeah, so I mean, 500 is a lot. 500 is that's, shocking that's a lot. to even that's a admit. Lot in a week, yeah. In a week, I mean, that's and absolutely almost certainly lying. Yeah. I mean, but it's like a, a modern version of a battle in World War One when you think of what we're used to. For casualties in a in a five five day period is absolutely shocking, and you know it's it's really hard that you it's really hard to be gleeful when you see a line of Russian T ninety tanks burnt out. Um, I want them to lose. I want them to be pushed back. I want those tanks to be destroyed. But it's a really terrible thing to think that all these young kids that had no I mean no sense that this was going to happen. I knew. Uh, I mean, I'm sure they knew that th- that there was something on the horizon, but something like this was going to they were going to meet their end in such a pointless way is really I was really sad to think about. And and just the, the last thing on it, I do have to go but and, and 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 I appreciate your being so patient. Um but yeah, on on that note, I I remember talking to people who served in Chechnya uh who and I don't know how much you know about the Russian army, but it's horrible if you don't go to war, like they have this thing <laughs> called Dead of Shina, where it, there are hazing rituals where basically it's like brutal sexual abuse 
um, that everybody goes through. 17, 18 year old kids. They get sent to the front lines in Chechnya. They were they were sent without any information about their missions. They were sent without proper supplies. They were they were selling their weapons to the enemy for food uh, in in the in the first Chechen war. And you see the same if you, if you look at these pictures of POWs today, you're seeing the same kids who aren't old enough to shave, um, you know, on their on their knees in in Ukraine, and they're as you say, even if that 500 number uh is is the real number that's like over three times what they lost in georgia uh it's a huge number even if you take just the russian number Mm -hmm. um so it's probably way worse than that and um you know i i i just feel i i think this is um a disaster for everybody i i i feel for um I can't say that I feel for Russian soldiers, but I, but I, those, those kids always affected me that got sent to Chechnya and, you know, to, for a mission that they didn't really understand. And, and, um, and it's just, it's the whole thing is just horrible. Yeah. Yeah. Happy birthday, Matt. <laughs> I just wanted to really get in the right exact time. I was looking, yeah. to, I was looking to make a turn of some sort. So thank yeah, you for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, didn't leave, I, I was, didn't leave you a lot of room there. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, I mean that, that's, yeah. it's real. Yeah, that's, there was no room for a three point turn there, Camille. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. thanks for thanks for bringing us all down a notch there. Yeah, yeah. No, 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 you can it. always count on me. Yeah. yeah. Great. Well, no, we'll sorry, you, sorry, guys. No, no. You, you've been you've been wonderful. Thank you for being generous yeah, with your time. You. We we weren't pushing you out the door. I, I just you got things to do. We we promised you a certain amount of time. We want to let you go. Yeah. No, um, thanks so for having we'll me. Let on. You, I really appreciate we'll let you it. get back to cementing money on Substack, or maybe you took the day, <laughs> out, the day off. <laughs> maybe you took the day off. It's okay. We like that yeah, here. We, we like, like that. that. Hey, hey yes. we're we're capitalists, sir. We want to privatize right. shit unapologetically. Right. Yeah. We right. want to privatize you, Matt Tyvee. Yeah, I'll just step around my mounds of cash and go see my kids. <laughs> um, uh, someone will yeah. take that out of context. Yeah. No. Go. <laughs> All right, man. We, 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 we know of new methods of Let's attack. Go. We'll figure it out later. <clears throat> figure yeah, it out. That post. white Russian is pretty delicious. Mm. Matt Tyvee, pretty. Me. Pretty, uh, pretty delicious too. I'm, uh, I'm really happy. Warmonger, that have... <laughs> I can't believe it. He's, he's more warmonger than I am about the Ruskies. <laughs> In fairness, he's like he said. I, I'm emotionally charged by this, so I consider it. And at the end, he was like, "This is a bad idea." But um, he's a bit shook. Yeah. I get it. It's, enough uh, to, enough human. to be a, a breaking news story that uh, <laughs> with all of his Substack cash, he's become. <laughs> He's, he's, we need a he's replacement funding, for Bill he's funding Crystal. The Ukrainian resistance, actually. Yeah, he's, he's using it to buy weapons. <laughs> <laughs> Robbie Suave had a, a little tweet today saying, um, "I don't think the U.S. should intervene, and I think that Russia is. is, is I'm, I'm rooting for Ukraine against Russia." And uh, mm-hmm. I guess that means I'm a neocon now. And like, it was great to watch all these libertarians like, "Well, actually, um, and... you know, you should read more Mearsheimer." By the way, I read that interview um, uh-huh. and sent it to you guys or mentioned it to you guys. Yeah. And I'll just say this. We've already kind of litigated it in, in some way, in me in a kind of stumbly, low blood sugar way. That's fine. Um, yeah, it's fine. Um, I, I cannot believe anyone would read that and be on come out on Mearsheimer's side. It's interesting. I mean, I, it, it's, it's actually... It's interesting. It's actually interesting that that, that is a, a reaction. So that tells me that maybe I don't understand... 
something in this world. The, the, the things that he said that are crazy that I alluded to before about, you know, we invented the notion of Putin as, as, uh, as this uh, aggressor. But actually, the, uh, since it comes up a lot, I think it's worth spending a half a minute on the Cuba um, uh, analysis or analogy, which is that, um, you know, and, and you hear this commonly, America wouldn't accept it if fill in mm-hmm. the blank. Um, but there's another flip side to that in that interview, which, again, everyone go read because it's interesting. You know, it's Isaac Chotner doing his Chotners uh, with a, a smart guy who's thought and read about this and is considered a leading light in uh, what is known as re- kind of realism. Realist. I questioned the reality of some of that realism. Um, but uh, he <laughs> says that Ukraine made a mistake uh, in choosing or trying to choose or even thinking about choosing um, an orientation towards the European Union uh, and the West broadly understood because they are right next to a large uh, neighbor um, that's very, very powerful. And realism tells you that you can't really do that. Well, my question is, if we use the Cuba analysis, so does that mean we're blaming Cuba for the Bay of Pigs? That's what I was trying to say earlier, actually. And I got, I literally got caught up in a thought there. And I was like, that is... (laughs) Is exactly the point is that you can't, I mean, it doesn't make any sense. We, we broadly understand. And I say this to someone who with a bunch of people (laughs) with a bunch of fifth column listeners with about like 40 of us visited the Bay of Pigs Museum in Miami. And it's awesome. And the dude who runs it or like is the main guy. Um, he was in the invasion. It was just, it, it was wonderful. Love every bit of it. But the Cuban, the Bay of Pigs is widely understood by just about everybody as a fucking fiasco. Like, it's an embarrassment. It's not something where we say, well, that's just, you know, that's just realism about America being a superpower and not tolerating someone with a different foreign policy in its own backyard. That's not how that is viewed, especially. Well, by- it's always different, too, in situations like this, because you have a change of presidents right around then, too. And this idea in 59, you have Eisenhower president and then JFK becomes the president and that becomes his. Uh, it's orphaned to him. But keep in mind also in the great power politics, the Cubans who landed in, in, in um, the Cuban exiles who landed in Cuba were desperately calling for air support and the United States didn't want to give it to them. Yeah. Didn't want to create a major conflict over this. Yeah. Um, and we wanted it was low like, level conflicts all the way down. Yes. And so, so yeah, it's interesting in, in that sense too, but they're never exactly good parallels because when people say like, yeah, in Canada, if you had, you know, on the border of Canada, it's like, when has, has Canada invaded us at some point? Have we uh, invaded Canada and made them a vassal state and then starved like 8 million people in Canada? It's like these situations aren't exactly parallel and in most cases aren't even close to being parallel. And by the way, would America accept a hostile power on its doorstep now versus because in the Cold War, that's a different thing. And we can debate whether or not that should have been the case in the Cold War with with, you know, the Soviets funding the Nicaraguan Revolution, uh, the United States being opposed to it and funding the Contras, et cetera. And then, you know, we had a democratic process that, you know, ultimately undid part of a presidency because when the democratic process said no more, the presidency said yes more and yeah. then did it secretly. And that was an enormous uh, uh, blight on the legacy of Reagan and all the people involved. And so it's, you know, obviously a, a, a different thing. But imagine the Cold War is gone, right? 
And people say, oh, it's like a Cold War now. Well, no, it's actually a hot war right now. So there's nothing cold about what's happening in Ukraine. But the Cold War is gone. So if we look at 2021 and 22, if America is on your doorstep and Joe Biden's president, do you honestly think that they're going to invade, that the U.S. is going to invade Russia? You can't actually detach your brain that much and just say, well, this is here and that's there. So therefore, this could go over to that. Well, who are the people that are playing this game? I mean, it's very, very different if it's, you know, Joe Biden versus somebody who says, I am going to actively fight expansionism of communism in our hemisphere, blah, blah, blah. That language is gone. You know, conservatives now are, are you know, saying no boots on the ground. Post-Iraq, it is a different order. Nobody can go and pretend that having a NATO power close by you means that you might be invaded, especially because NATO has never invaded anybody. You might want to have a track record in some sense to actually make those accusations. But it's all it's all smoke and mirrors because, you know, there I, it's the thing I said to Matt is that is that, look, it's like it's a bad idea and Georgia's a bad idea. It didn't happen. It never happened. 30 years later, it never happened. There's been conversations and conversations here and conversations there. And I think, the, probably, the argument, I think there shouldn't have been conversations, honestly. I mean, there, there no, should can, be. I mean, there should be. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, 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 as again, as to, to echo the question from earlier, like why now is a very, it's a very strange question. I think the argument from the realist standpoint seems to be that these earlier provocations created a circumstance in which it becomes unavoidable that this other great power will eventually push back against what are perceived encroachments at whatever point. And the, to, to sort of further carry out the argument that he's making, he's deeply concerned about China and sees China as a more important strategic foe and imagines that if you have a world with several sort of powerful poles where the Chinese and the Americans are actually the, the two most significant poles, but Russia is perhaps this third pole, you could try to have a more harmonious relationship with Russia so as to check the power of a rising China. Um, and instead, we find ourselves being drug into a conflict with Russia over Ukraine, um, perhaps risking some wider conflict and at a minimum putting ourselves as a, at, a, at a further strategic disadvantage when it comes to dealing with China. And I think that's, you know, that combined with the, 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 what's perceived as hypocrisy on the part of the United States is what I think makes the argument compelling to, to some readers who I might not have. I think none of that makes sense. Further the provocation. What, what is the provocation? The Baltics in the, in NATO? Is that a provocation? Um, that is, some that is the will, argument. Yes. That's some the people argument. will read that as a provocation. Um, I don't agree with that analysis, not a provocation um, to uh, guarantee um, the independence, the, the security uh, independence of three tiny nations um, that have long been subjugated by their neighbors. Um, well, let's turn this to to what you just said. I could take exactly what you said mm -hmm. and add a couple of different clauses in the end of the sentence. And I think it would maybe, I hope demonstrate the weakness in ultimately the stupidity of that argument. I'm, I'm not saying it's your argument, but that yeah, argument that's it often isn't made. my argument. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the one that's often made is that, you know, the provocation, there's provocations to Ukraine too. 
Genocide is a provocation. Occupation is a private uh, is a provocation. Mm-hmm. Cleaving off parts of its territory without you know having any negotiations is a provocation, and all of that is a provocation to send letters to the EU saying, "Can we be a member?" and saying, "Can we have discussions about NATO?" Which is, of course, what's happening in in Georgia and in Finland and to a lesser degree in Sweden right now. So those are those are all very very large provocations to you know the ukrainians and i think that you know we often look at it through one lens only is that yeah i mean the russians are so mad but here's the other thing to think about alexei navalny is sitting in prison Mm. and yet the man is the bravest man on earth and just does not give a fuck he will go home to be arrested after being abroad he after being poisoned after being beaten on the streets and then he will still say get out on the streets and protest my people uh, this war. That's how brave that man is. If Alexei Navalny was allowed to compete in a fair, actual fair election, which is impossible, meaning that there was broadcast news that was not one small newspaper in Novoya Gazeta, there was actual fair coverage, editorials in, 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 you know, Izvestia that were both pro and against him. That can't happen, but pretend it could. And he became the president of, of Russia. Not all of this goes away. Mm. All of it. It just disappears. The fact that like that thing about having a uh, to being able to cohabit with Russia so we can focus more on China is I mean, I don't think we are focused much on Russia. I don't think we are being dragged into this because we're doing nothing more than allowing. I mean, Biden was pretty explicit in the State of the Union address. Not our fight, not our boots on that ground. Um, Yeah. Sympathize and and empathize, but also not one inch of NATO, motherfucker, which is that's the I think the proper American president response if we're going to have a defensive treaty uh, alliance. Well, I mean, at this point, when you invade a country and you murder as many people as the murderous Russian uh, military has done, um, I say give them NATO now. Because it, what is NATO for? To prevent being invaded by Russia. Fucking, it happened. Expel them and join the NATO. neocon column. No, I mean, look, what the fuck good is NATO if when you're invaded and you expel the invaders, you don't join? That's the time to join. Because I would say, and I would actually be, be very, you know, reticent about it, uh, ha- you know, two months ago. But right now, it's like all bets are off. You made a bet and you fucking lost. And that's what happens when you lose, much like the Soviet Union. What you did to Ukraine during those years of occupation, what you, I mean, there's these wonderful riots that happened in the gulag that changed things. And, you know, right after Stalin died between Stalin and, and Khrushchev, like the Malenkov, Malenkov period when, you know, they're breaking these things down. There, there were Ukrainian. There's so many of these are Ukrainian prisoners. So many of the people that were, were cannon fodder in, in defeating Nazi Germany, Ukrainian prisoners, they gave a lot to the Russian state and they didn't want to be a part of it and were never asked if they should be a part of it. I mean, they, they declared independence in what, 1919 and fought a war till 19, what, 22 when the Bolsheviks took over. They tried to do it. Then they've been abused for a century. Talk about people who have a fucking chip on their shoulder and justifiably. So Vladimir Putin's mad. Go fuck yourself. I don't care. I don't care. He's 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 proven himself. And as Matt pointed out, the apartment bombings, I, I, I honestly um, um, people should look into this because it I wanted I said, this is nonsense. I think it was Ed, Edward Lucas or something. When I first read it and I said, this can't be true. And I read more and more and I became like Taibbi and said, this is a lot to this. I don't know what's going on. But if that is actually true, let's pretend it's true that those apartment bombings that justified the Second Chechen War were perpetrated by the FSB at the behest of Vladimir Putin, 
It is one of the greatest crimes committed by a leader against its, his own people in that I can think of in the past 20, 30 years. I mean, that monstrous crime. And I'm not saying like war crimes. I mean, in a peacetime, like I'm just going to secretly bomb people and then use that as a pretext. Did it happen? I don't know. It's pretty convincing, the stuff that I've read. But um, a lot of Russians, I mean, the Voya Gazeta, very, very reputable and um, well-regarded uh, newspaper, did a lot of interesting reporting on it. And just check it out. But yeah, I'm, I'm, it's, I'm pissed off at this stuff. I'm so tired of these people are fucking dying in, in, in bodies being stacked like cordwood and a bunch of jack-offs saying like, yeah, this is our fault. Fuck you, it's our fault. What is that, Freddie DeBoer? The guy who, like, blames me for, like, everything that ever happened to him because I said something 30 years ago that I don't remember. I, I, no one's ever told me what it was, but the, he, he said something like, America's the most malign power since Nazi Germany. I, I mean, you're just not a serious person if you think that. I'm sorry. It's not serious. It's not serious. Man, you're getting a lot Shots of fire here today. Shots fired. <laughs> no, Shots I, fired. I, I, want, I want Camille to, to, to rise up and, and defend his uh, anti-war brethren. I mean, Although you know, I got to say the uh, if you, you can be back, anti-war and not be a fucking idiot <laughs> and you can be a realist. And this is my ultimately my, my criticism of Mearsheimer. Like, there's a great argument that NATO shouldn't be expanded, and that that was a provocation. Okay, there's or there's a good argument, an argument worth having, um, and that you know only happened in fits and starts in the process of NATO enlargement. Okay, um, you can do that, and, and you can espouse realism by describing the world realistically as it is. When people cross the line and say crazy crap, like, you know, the Georgia in 2014 is America's fault. Like, no, that's not realism. That's not a realistic portrayal of what the moral responsibility at hand was. It's uh, it's a trollish way of making an argument that a bunch of American decisions led up to this point and made it more likely. But the point and the more yeah. likely was an action, a, a, a malign action of a large nuclear power to violate the sovereignty and violate its own treaty uh, obligations um, with its neighbor. Um, you got to be able to see uh, uh, yeah. be realistic enough to see that. I assume a lot of people are, you know, shaking their head and disagreeing with me on this one. Fine. Um, you know, I expect the emails to come. But if you're anti-war. And in a sense, who isn't? I mean, I know there are people who get their rocks off by, you know, armies jumping in out of airplanes and taking over countries because they think, you know, life is Rambo. But sensible people are. I mean, almost to, to a man, I would hope. Um, of course, that's not true. <laughs> but I would hope. I mean, the people <laughs> I know, I mean, but they're not ideologically so. And I would say this, that ideologically so means something totally different. And that's what's frustrating to me, because if you are opposed to war and wars of expansion, rather than spending your time going through the rubbish bin of history, trying to pin the blame on somebody, why don't you just say the simple thing that if you're angry about this, there's negotiations to be had, right? There's a negotiation. You can negotiate this in some way, which is precisely how Russia has kept Ukraine out of NATO for 30 fucking years, right? I mean, this is the, people I hear talking about this, it's almost like I've never heard of NATO before. And, you know, Matt and I have cared about this for a long time and it's frustrating to watch this. But this wasn't something that happened yesterday or was even 
talked about in such an aggressive way that it demanded an aggressive response. This is not what was consuming Ukraine in the past year. This was not what was consuming Ukraine. Go back and look. And if you can find it, I would be really interested to see it, that this was the animating passion of a certain element of the Ukrainian population. No. And you want to, you want to, uh, you know, salve your own wounds. Okay. You're anti-war. I think that your big concern should be buildings full of people, apartment buildings be blown up by grad rockets that are not steerable, shall we say. Right. I think that maybe that's the biggest concern. I think if you're opposed to war, getting a ceasefire right now and getting the, the scumbag aggressors in the Kremlin to the table should be your concern. Or just sitting back and litigating what America did in 1991 and you know nothing about. Shouldn't have done that. It made them mad. Okay. People do things that make me mad all the time. Would you be okay if I went over and smashed all the windows of your house and <laughs> killed your neighbor? <laughs> oh, fuck. It's so stupid. It's so stupid. Like, it's, it's, this stuff is unconscionable. And it is not some, this is not a, it's not as, I mean, even if the people that compare to Iraq, I mean, I think about the Iraq stuff all the time and where so many people, including myself, went wrong. I was a lot younger. I was not interested in this stuff as much as I became. And it was because of Iraq in a lot of ways. But even Iraq invaded a neighboring country and there was a 1996 resolution, 98 resolution, the Iraq Liberation Act. And, you know, this was a thing. Bad guys, right? Everyone agreed. Shouldn't have gone to war. Bad guys. Does anyone say that about Ukraine? They've invading neighbors and they're bad. No, this is a, a, a country that offended the sensibilities of a former KGB agent and they're suffering the consequences. That's it. End of story. Yeah. Well, maybe we should talk about State of the Union stuff really quickly before we wrap up today, because that was yesterday. And maybe that'll calm you down. Maybe you'll, maybe no. you'll get a little more excited. Um, uh, it was a very strange on, evening. Um, Joe Biden's State of the Union seemed to be uh, have like its MAGA moments. At one point, Republicans started chanting, build the wall in response really? to him talking about, yeah, you could you could hear it. And I could I could hear oh. it on this side anyways. Um, on, on the feed I was watching. Um, but at, at when he started to talk about border security, um, and there were other kind of MAGA-ish moments where he said, defund the, the police, not defund the police, fund the police. And all of the was, Republicans wait, so jumped that up was out the of their sentence that he said? And applauded. Oh, you didn't watch uh, it, dude? Uh, you're going to so, make me find so the I actual transcript, but no, no, yeah, no. pretty Big, much. Biggest, biggest applause line, arguably, in the whole speech was fund the police. No, because but, remember, but I was did watching also it, we say, were texting. don't defund the police. He did say that. He, yeah. he directly okay. confronted that. So when I saw that and you texted that, because we were texting about, <laughs> about it while I was watching it, too. Yes. And I got so embarrassed. Which is a little distracting. All the malapropisms. You just turn your phone off. Um, <laughs> I mean, most people don't respond to me. Um, that I was like kind of embarrassed by it. So I assumed that maybe he just left the D off oh, because he by, couldn't oh, finish any word. No, no, nope. no, no, no. no. Okay. no. He, was, he, he emphasized He's, it was only written once in the speech. Oh. He said it three times. Uh, he was ready to go. Like this was a because I thought it was like defund. But no, 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 defund. No, no, come on, come on, fund. He had those moments too, but this was but this was very direct. Um, and and it was really a blending of both the kind of a progressive um dream wish list uh with respect to like all of the build back better 
effectively getting checked the different elements of the Build Back Better plan, getting name checked at different instances um, throughout the pre- presentation. The one thing that I thought was conspicuously absent uh, was all of the chat about equity and people of color. He even mentions his nominee to the Supreme Court, who he, of course, as we all know, had explicitly said, you know, she may not have any other qualifications, but I guarantee she's going to have a brown vagina. Um, like I don't that, think that's a direct quote. That is direct quote. That is exactly what he said. <laughs> that there was his press secretary who was asked about. It. He said, "Yeah, that's what he said." He yeah. said, "Smooth, <laughs> smooth." That's smooth. his preference. Yeah. Um, so, or white supremacy. Um, he didn't even mention racism. They did mention um, the 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 voter uh, voting reform um, that they that they're trying to pass. Um, but even in that context, like, didn't mention racism. It was like very strange. In that respect, almost as though they're paying attention to the polling that suggests that a lot of their equity agenda, which again, another word not mentioned, equity, inclusivity, um, that you that tweeted they that. Did you get a lot of pushback that. from that? Um, no, there's no pushback because it's true. I said it, but if I said it, it's I mean, right. He also, he also said that schools should be open and they should yeah. be closed. Well, that's the other thing. No, no, maskless, no, 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 maskless Biden. <laughs> <laughs> maskless Biden. Maskless Biden masked, going through walking to everybody a up. helicopter the other day outside, literally the day before. Yeah, so this this was a this was a coming out party today, <laughs> or not today? Last night, um, a few a few lies, um, or or at least misrepresentations as to be expected. Um, but uh, I'm, I wonder what you guys saw beyond the slurring that's worth uh, talking about. Um, and did you, you did you the, watch the two Democratic responses, not the Republican oh response, the oh, two no. Democratic responses Jeez. last night? No, dear God, no. Thank God. Yeah, the separate, the Social Democratic Party, too, with uh, Rashida Tlaib. Rashida Tlaib. At least we don't have the Tea was, Party response anymore. You know? Yeah, but now now the Congressional Black Caucus has its response. So now you got two. two what, what did the CBC night. say? Um, I mean, I don't even really know. It was uh, Representative Colin Allred from Texas. And I, I mean, I kind of like listened to a little bit of it. Uh, so at the same time, did they do it like right after? Um, it, I saw it um much later on YouTube, so I have no idea if anyone was watching that in real time. I do know that the Black Business Network or or Black News Network, whatever they call themselves, um, had an exclusive, and there were like two thousand views. So <laughs> one yeah. of those was mine. So, so I, it was, I don't so, think it was, it was so exclusive successful. they only invited two thousand people. <laughs> I uh, um, yeah the the I mean the first ten minutes about Ukraine was pretty good. I didn't necessarily love the you know howling for blood about seizing assets and Project Kleptocrat or whatever the hell it's going to be you called. You can't even fly here, Matt. You can't uh, yeah. fly here from there. But yeah. like you know, it's the it, there's a crisis. It's so we're, we're in the middle of, of of two big things and a another thing that that matters. Right, the two big things are. Ukraine is happening right now. It's huge, man. Come on, uh, and it's big, and the kind of wind no, no, down. No, 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 Ukraine, <laughs> the, 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 the cranes. No, 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 no. <laughs> the cranes. Come on, the cranes. Yeah, <laughs> Zelensky, Kaczynski. But I don't know. The end of COVID policies, right? You know, and we're still traumatized mm-hmm. as a country in ways I think that we haven't even grappled with totally. I think there's been sort of a c- compression of everyone's brains and we're all sort of exploding out of the can like those you funny think I was like snake this three things. years ago. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, but then also like just the economy is kind of weird inflation's weird and this stuff is weird. So those are the th- when things are really serious, that's a good time to focus. 
right? So the first 10 minutes are um, him, him talking about Ukraine. Okay, that's, you know, regardless of what you think about his policies of it, he's talking about the moment largely in ways that makes at least semi-sense to me. I would have liked him to see him, to have seen him uh, say, you know, good on Germany, good on France for taking the lead on this stuff. And maybe they should start thinking about their own security arrangements. Maybe I know that wasn't going to happen, but I would like to see some nod in that direction and maybe a couple other things. But still, that's fine. He pivots from there immediately to, okay, so this is why trickle-down economics suck and why though you know the tax cut only went to the one percent, like no, that's not sure. your transition, dude. Like to it's also go, not true, right? It's not true, which it's is a problem. By everybody, um, and like it, it, the whatever kind of like we're all in this together, um, sense of goodwill, oftentimes, which is you know garbage on its own. Um, that's not what you do. And then he spends the next fifty minutes just going Bill Clinton, nineteen ninety eight or nineteen ninety nine, like mentioning all these provisions in bills that are not even being negotiated anymore because Joe Manchin told him to fuck off, right? So, like, what are we doing? Mm -hmm. That's why we got to do the PRO Act, and I'm going to solve cancer. And, (laughs) like, what the living fuck? That detracts from the seriousness before, and it also, I think, indicates a lack of seriousness uh, of the way that we even do governance anymore. There's some, you know, George Washington famously said, I'm not going to give a speech in person um, at the State of the Union address because it's unseemly for a Republican government. It looks too much like a monarchy. Fuck that. I'm going to hand it in writing. And this is my, you know, idea about what the State of the Union is now as the uh, head of the, the executive branch. This is maybe some things that you all should know about. Now it's like, here's all the legislation I want passed. You are the president. That's not your job. It shouldn't be. Well, we have become this horribly presidential system, and it's gross. And he's just sort of like throwing a bone over there, throwing a bone over here, and everyone is going to sleep. And whatever sense of like resolve and seriousness that he wanted to whip up uh, at the beginning is all frittered away. And meanwhile, he's saying that what the I don't know if he, he even said the, the Iranians. I think it was the Uranians. Like, that's the people from Uranus. He said he was selling uranium to the Russians, <laughs> which, <laughs> uh, which is what QAnon has been saying for ages. You he talked about a loving playing field. Uh, I'm just looking at our a text. A loving playing field? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, a loving playing field. He yeah, talked about uh, freedy loving nations. That was one that I, I, I called. <laughs> he wanted to lower the cost no, 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 of families. No, 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 freedy loving. Freedom loving. <laughs> Not the free, no, free, freedom. Freedom. Come on, man. And he's there was a funny thing it. at the end where I, I, I tuned back in because I read it and then I tuned back in and he was talking to Justice Breyer and it was in one of these feeds mm-hmm. that you get on the internet where there's no a commentary so you can just hear him talking like in the background. <laughs> and he was like, come on, man, I mean it. And I was like, what is, what are they talking about? <laughs> they're like is betting on like, it was like, well, he always sounds kind of angry. It's like he was betting on a cockfight or something. And he's like, you really want to bet on that, that rooster? Come on, man. I mean it. And like Briar looked really awkward and like, oh, oh my cool, God. Cool. Yeah. Right. I, what is the purpose of these things? Like, why don't we get rid of them? They're I think so we should. pointless. Who's I think we? we should. Kimosabe. That's the problem. Like, like America. You're not going to. This is the speech <laughs> that is watched more than any other stupid presidential speech all year. So it becomes an occasion. It's like the Super Bowl of dumb speeches. And uh, and they have to give it. Um, and that's what we get. More and, press conferences, less of this bullshit. Yeah. At least pre- press conferences, you get whatever um, 
Luke Ducey or whatever yelling at you <laughs> about masks or something. No, yeah. And then the, the, whatever his name is. Bob, every, every five Bob years Ducey. or so, I, I will, Steve. I will put together a, uh, a dad? Uh, an eternal state of the union that is based on um, one sentence each from the last like 70 state of the unions. And yeah. like, you realize you've heard like, that's the American genius. When we want to get together and like, solve a problem america is the only place that actually solves those problems like it's in every fucking state yeah. of the union address since time immemorial uh it means nothing i think that the the rhetorical thing that means something going forward is that you know he was at the beginning basically uh crowing over the fact that the international system or the west for lack of better words um was was uniting and resolving and he was taking some credit for being part of that process and and i presume that he was part of that process against uh russia's invasion um and then almost as soon as he pivots to you know the trickle down economics complaint which is a phrase that nobody but democrats has even said in since 40 1983 years, um he talks about like that's why we have to buy american first and you know make sure that we have all the tariffs everywhere this is uh, that that's actually the opposite of the beginnings of the international system it was understood widely from 1952 1947 who, who knows exactly when but after world war ii that in order for the free world to be robust in its defense and its bulwark against communism which was really advancing not just in its own sphere of influence but elsewhere um and especially in the in what we used to call the third world um that the best way for people to be able to do that or countries is by trading freely amongst each other and building prosperity in a way that communist command control economies could not do this was just understood as a bedrock uh, sense of american policy making um from the get-go and that's why america loved the creation of the precursor to the european union because it was a free trade zone in between places if france and germany get richer maybe for once they won't bomb everybody or each other um yeah. and that turned out to be kind of true and like we had a, a gradual reduction of tariffs from 1945 to around 2015 2014 and it kind of stalled out and so for biden to crow about all this stuff and then turn on a dime and just go like the stupidest America first bullshit. Very, very Trumpy, very like you know, it's, it's continuity, really, of, of all those really bad policies. You're not going to build that together. So there, there isn't a replacement version of the previous and, you know, uh, understandably frowned upon or discredited in some ways international system from Democrats or Republicans um, right now. And. Uh, that mm -hmm. bums me out. I think that there there well, is a place things, for a robust defense for that stuff. Yeah, and it's one of those things, Matt, that um, is one of those few policies that everybody now has, you know, is, is four square against, and it's the popular thing to be, that they don't practice at all, and if it was disrupted, they would be very upset and it would ruin their lives. And I'm talking about trade. I mean, it's a very basic thing. If everything... You know, if trade from China shut down, we're gonna, no more trade. We're going to tariffs until everything goes away and you buy your steel and your aluminum and your wood and your products and your microchips and everything here that don't exist and factories that to make it that don't exist and comparative advantage should be in the front of everybody's mind when these things are talking being talked about in, in the State of the Union. 
Um, man, I'm sounding like Joe Biden tonight. I'm just stumbling. I mean, I guess they're drinking a little bit, but come on. <laughs> but it's, 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 you know, whatever. Whatever. Trade, trade, not trade. Not trade. <laughs> Tim, Tim, not Tim. Um, that is an, an incredible thing, though. I've never seen an issue turn so quickly in which the actual practical applications of the of the policy remain in place and would be ruinous and people would be very upset if they weren't in place. It is it is a policy position that is one purely of posture. We want, you know, let's tra- like, OK, let me tell you something. If you want, you know, let's get let's get our stuff back from China. There's a certain amount of stuff there that is sensible, you know, pharmaceuticals and the pandemic and things like that. Um, you know, they're mostly manufactured in India, China, et cetera. So, yeah, there's some I mean, I'm not saying the, the entire thing is stupid, but 90 percent of it's pretty stupid. If you want your iPhone to be produced in the United States, you realize that it can't be, number one, because we can, I can go all eye pencil on you and tell you where every every bit of that uh, uh, phone comes from. And almost none of it's from the U.S. And when Donald Trump was saying back in the day, you remember he said, we're going to build these Foxconn, the Chinese company is going to oh, build yeah. stuff in Wisconsin. I went to that Wisconsin place. And it was a they they eminent domain people off of their land to build a place that was doing nothing at that point. Nothing. I think ultimately they started making monitors or like putting them together, but it's all assembly. Like we assemble things, all the stuff that's actually guts are actually made somewhere else, brought here for assembly. And it's just to give people a sense that this stuff is made in the US and they want it made in the US and blah, 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 blah nonsense look at that great thing that donald trump did you never people never revisit these things that were supposed victories how what is the aluminum industry in america like now what is the steel industry in in america like now after all these tariffs went up to prevent cheap chinese steel well the funny thing about it was a lot of companies that were making things in america use steel and aluminum from other countries and all of a sudden could not compete as american companies people that made i went to a, a factory that made nails and they got some of the raw materials from Mexico because it was either too expensive or I think it was too expensive to get in the U.S. And it totally crippled their business. So Donald Trump is saving American businesses and crippling them at the same time. No one did an accounting of, of this stuff. Well, I'm sure somebody did, but no one did a real accounting of this stuff for the public, not out of academic papers and the rest of it to say, oh, by the way, all of you are on the side of, you know, reducing trade and bringing everything home to America. First of all, that is the exact same argument as get in line for immigration. It's a thing that doesn't exist. It's a thing that sounds good and it's at the top of your head. Like, well, just get in line. That's what everybody else does. Well, no, there is no line. So let's, let's move on from that. Let's make these uh, phones and this, that, and that. You can't. You just can't do it. And so, like, I find it so amazing that the, one of the things that was like the bedrock principle of free market economics, which was trade. I mean, where did Milton Friedman start Free to Choose, the series? The first frame is where? Hong Kong. Hong Kong. Hong Kong. Yeah. Exactly. And that was the bedrock of, of, of his ideas about trade. And they've just, they've been defeated without being defeated. It's an amazing, amazing thing. Meanwhile, it still polls exceptionally well, or at least it did last time I looked, because out of like revulsion of towards Donald Trump, to be clear, but like it still polls uh, which, well. Which bit polls well? Uh, trade. Um, like uh, Americans' general attitudes towards free trade. Um, at towards the end of the Trump presidency, and I haven't looked at it since. Is that was true? It, yeah, it was up around seventy percent. It was as high as it has ever been. So I why think a is large everyone left and right going the other direction because they saw a, a politician create success. Uh, yeah, two even yeah, Trump true. and Bernie Sanders 
uh, who didn't like win the ultimate biscuit, but he got close. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Where's my biscuit? (laughs) (laughs) Look, uh, uh, there's a great, I want to just shout out my colleague, Christian Britsky, whose name I'll never pronounce correctly at reason. Um, his reaction to the state of the unit address was, you know, Biden praises iron will of Georgians, um, refuses to allow Americans to buy Georgian iron. Um, and that's just Ukrainians. basically Ukrainians. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. I'm already screwing up. I'm going, I'm going full You're morning Biden. here. You're going full um, Biden now. Uh, but no, like that's, that's, that's a major export of the Ukraine. Um, uh, and I've just put a the now there too, um, is iron and, uh, and Biden is continuing Trump's idiotic protectionism. Um, this is something that, I, that I, I watched and it drove me crazy in 1990s uh, post-communist Europe. These super poor countries who couldn't really make anything, they could absolutely export you some steel. Um, and so what did successive presidencies do? They're like, oh, that's dumping. That's dumping. These people yeah. who've been under the boot for 40 years, who are poor, they're devastated. Um, they're going to get slapped with anti-dumping sanctions from a rich country. Um, that's that it, it, it's nonsensical. It's, it's actually actively immoral and it, it has pissed me off for as long as I've been alive. Why is nobody brought up Burisma? <laughs> I'm just, I don't know anything about it, but you'd think <laughs> Ukraine conflict business. You haven't been Yanukovych, following you'd Don think Jr.'s, like, uh, Don Jr.'s, you know, uh, Twitter uh, feed? Not even Twitter, like uh, parlor yeah, feed, I'm telegram. sure. Yeah. Oh. He's Getter? Is that twitching one? his uh, fingers. Uh, speaking of twitching, we should probably let Camille go because he's been trying to nap this whole time. I know. <laughs> Look at it. <laughs> no, it's, care about it's been, it's, no, it's not true. It's been, it has been a long week and it's about to get, it's about to get a little longer. So his eyes are so small. Look at yeah. that. We yeah. Got, we got to do this on video. So on video just to see. Yeah, after after I recover and after the baby learns to sleep through the night, at some point after around I that. recover, Camille yeah. says <laughs> this has been like a days. journalist in Ukraine. This I'm has alive. been hardest for me. <laughs> <laughs> this pregnancy has been hardest for me. It's, no, and it's that's the thing. That's the thing that they don't appreciate. Like they, you're not looking after the husband in the circumstances. Because everybody is worried about you know baby developing and mom mm-hmm. carrying baby. But what about me? Mm-hmm. What about <laughs> what about my knees? We are pregnant. They always tell me that's what you. It's a, it's fine to say we are pregnant. We you should use that NATO argument when you cheat on her. <laughs> oh, no, you should be like you know. That I was never I was I was offended. I was upset. Nobody was paying attention. Mm-hmm. To me. You poked the bear. <laughs> you poked the bear, and I'm like, what am I? What am I? Chop liver? I have to sleep with five girls today, and they're like, but I'm an independent woman. And I, I want to make my decisions. Nope, you got to care about me. I'm upset, I and not, I had sex with women. That does not that does not apply to me. I'm not. <laughs> I didn't do that. Not Representative Van Taylor. You didn't. <laughs> you didn't. <laughs> oh man, sleeping with the ISIS bride. Saw that picture. Yeah. Man, you, you saw the picture. Right? I saw the picture. Oh, you sent the picture. Uh, yeah, I saw the picture. Yeah, we, I did. We, 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 I did. We texted about that saw the picture. picture. Yeah, I saw that picture. Yeah, I just started reading the Quran. I was like, <laughs> Let me go, see if I can get some of this. No, I mean, like, he was. I mean, I think it's, number it's because 58. he was obviously punching above his weight there. Like he was yeah. doing really well. It's probably worth it. He shouldn't have. Apo- he shouldn't have like dropped out of the race. He shouldn't. He shouldn't even apologize. He's, have you seen her? 
Yeah, oh, he, should, he, he should have walked up Did to the I? lectern with a with a with a t shirt with a picture of this broad on it. Wait, you're you're asking me if 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 the two of us if there was if some infidelity. Purpose? Let me let me show you the picture. Like, yeah, you know, no. she's pretty bad. It was worth it. It was worth I it. I couldn't believe I the apologize for nothing. I let me be your congressman. That's good. I mean, that's a good. She's argument. a recruiting poster for ISIS. If that's what you, maybe I'll. No, no longer affiliated. No longer affiliated. Wait, so they become hot after? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> really, just yeah. trying to blow up my room. Rip the burlap sack. Oh, we should stop now. Are possible. Okay, so uh, we're gonna stop now. Yeah, um, when I come now. back, I'll be a dad, and that'll be again. I'll be a double dad. So this is very mm-hmm. exciting. It's happening. And I'll be dating a girl from ISIS. (laughs) Again. Their local Uh, Long Island affiliate. (laughs) Bye. Bye. We we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse.